podcast this week. We're flying high as Brad Bird and Ethan Hawke drop by to talk Incredibles 2 and Paul Schrader's first Reformed. It's like a regular Avery in here. Get it? Bird? Hawk? Avery? Flying high? Ah, well, all that and more on the movie pod that is sad to see that it won't be coming home after all. Probably for the best. Pennywise is powerful, but wouldn't have been able to keep tabs on Mbappe and Griezmann in the final. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, which once again is brought to you by those wonderful peeps at Sky Cinema, the dedicated home for movie lovers. Later in the show, as usual, I'll be pointing out a couple of movies you can watch in Sky Cinema, just two movies from the thousand-plus films that are available on demand on Sky Cinema, including a brand-new premiere every single day. Thanks also to the guy who wrote in a couple of weeks ago pointing out that brand-new premiere is a tautology. Thank you for that. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, yeah. I, sh- I should just say premiere, shouldn't I? Yes. Should we go back and re-record the last nah. all of 12 weeks? Yeah. Every single one. Okay. Including this one, because mm-hmm. I did it again. Uh, anyway, this week I'm back. I was in Northern Ireland last week. Uh, not today. So we're recording this uh, on the glorious 12th. And my uh, Northern yeah. Irish colleague, Helen O'Hara, and I, we have decided to set aside our differences our political and religious differences. Yep. And come together to build a better future. Hands meeting across the divide. Indeed. Chris. Indeed. Uh, for, so for, for non-Northern Irish people, the divide is between white Anglo-Saxon Catholics and white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. It is fierce. It's a vast and it's, gaping chasm. It's, uh, it, well, it is a big one. There's no doubt about it. It is the 12th, and I've decided to be the bigger man in this, in this uh, Typical little Protestant. debate of ours. And uh, and just be nicer, nicer to right. you. So, smelling O'Hara, <laughs> how are you? I'm you good? good? Well, yeah. I was good, yeah. yeah. I'm great. Though. All right, yeah, you okay there? Good. This sectarian violence is making me uncomfortable. <laughs> violence making you uncomfortable. We're yeah, reaching right. out across the divide. So, uh, last week I wasn't here and James Dyer stepped into the hosting chair. Uh, I don't know whether you actually sat or whether you stood up. I no. sat. You sat? I sat. Okay. I'm sitting, most of the times I tend to stand, but... I'm, I don't know why I'm sitting. I don't even know why I'm telling people this. Anyway, but I believe uh, you raised the bar in terms of uh, a long-winded, over-the-top <laughs> introduction of as, as the colleagues of such lethal cunning. Oh, not so. for me. Oh, I didn't get it. No, no, the, the full benefit was, went elsewhere. Was, that there? there was some stuff there. Mm. All right, okay. So I think I've given Helen a suitable build-up. Helen, of course, is our geek queen, colleague of such lethal cunning, all that sort of stuff. I'm going to give you, James, I'm going to give you a taste of your medicine oh, God. and give you a long-winded... Over the top, grand, glorious build-up. Okay? You ready? Uh-huh. And so uh, James Dyer is also here, which is nice, I guess. Uh, how are you? Oh you, you okay? Thanks. That was, that was worthy of my, my stature. I really wanted to put something into it. Uh, give myself something of myself to you. you yeah. know, to, to show how overjoyed I am that you have once again invited yourself onto the podcast. That's... <laughs> it's really you're, you're welcome. I'm glad no, I could crash it once again. No, it's lovely. It's lovely. And as soon as I find out how to prop that door closed here... <laughs> This is it. It's your last one. Uh, how are you both? You good? I mean, yeah. Trump is in town. Yeah, that's so. Bad. You know, um, and we do need to kind of get a move on with this, so we can be get into the Mission Impossible queue. So you know, if you can you're, not, like, you're not, you're not demonstrating. Do you yeah. think it's going to be Mission Impossible queue? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Trump is having dinner at Blenheim Palace in Oxfordshire. I think we should all head down there and crash it. There is going to be a protest there, thankfully, uh, organised by Oxford, which is great. Blenheim, of course, a big, big movie star. Blenheim. Mm. 
It's been in Hamlet. Didn't Churchill grow up at Blenheim Palace? He spent some time there, but he's he's a branch of the family, a cadet branch of the family, so he, he didn't have the right to Blenheim. That's why he lived elsewhere. Well, there you go. Hot mm. fact. Blenheim. Mm. Okay, <laughs> so uh, let's move straight on into our question. Sure. Oh, no, hang on. I've got written down here. World Cup chat? No. Question mark. No, no, uh, so we should. We should, because I'm, I'm well into the, the football. This is the thing. This, is, this has been on everyone's minds of the last few, oh, certainly mine, the World Cup, which is coming to an end. It finishes this Sunday in, in Russia. Uh, England, as we know now, sadly did not make the final uh, last night, if you're listening to this a couple of days ago. Uh, they lost to Croatia in the semifinals, 2-1. And usually I'm very much on my own when I'm banging on about football on the podcast. Uh, and Helen still remains an island as far as football is concerned. Yes. Uh, completely impervious to, the, to the, the charms of the World Cup. Yes. I just don't <laughs> care. Don't care? No. Yeah. Okay. Sooner or later, we'll get to something you do care about. Probably. Roger Federer. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I'm not... Okay. In terms of sporting defeats yesterday, there's one I'm upset about, and it's not England, so can we not? Now you know how I felt when Phil Power-Taylor lost uh, his last ever darts match last this, year. Yeah, but this is not Roger's last match, all right? He's going to be fine. Uh, but anyway, football. James here is a football... Well, how would you describe it? You know, agnostic, hater, hater, hater. yeah, stronger than agnostic. Then, yeah. uh, so he bathes in the haterade each night. Before yeah, bed. I do. Doesn't understand the game. Doesn't want to know the game. No. And yet, came last night to watch the semi-final with me, I and did. was somewhat engrossed, more engrossed, I would say, than you are with Luke Cage season two. I mean, I am literally eleven hours deep in that shit, and I just I've lost the will to live. But it's got to the point now where I know it's like poker, isn't it? You never put good money after bad. And I'm having to waste another two hours to get to the end. But I feel at this point, having put 11 hours in, I have to make it to the finish line. Yeah. So that I can, at the end, say never again and then make exactly the same mistake <laughs> when Iron Fist Season 2 comes out. And it's just like, honestly, I don't know why I do this to myself. I- Iron Fist Season 2, though? Really? I mean, well, it could happen. I haven't seen Luke Cage Season 2, but I Oof. understand that the episode with Danny Rand is actually quite fun and that they're beginning to rehabilitate that character a little bit and that. That, that might bode well for, for Iron Fist Season 2. I beg to differ on all counts. Okay. It was it was exactly what you imagine from an episode of Luke Cage that features the immortal Iron Fist. But are you not hate-watching this a little bit? Have you not gone in with your mind made no, up No, but the thing bit? is, I'm a massive fan of Mike Coulter, and I still think he's really good in it. He's just really good in a... In, like, this film, if this was... I don't even want to say six hours. If this was, like, feature length, I reckon you could make a fairly decent sort of low-budget, kind of low-level superhero movie out of this story mm-hmm. featuring Bushmaster and the, the stuff. But it's 13... I mean, it's not actually 13 hours. It's 13 episodes long. It just, just feels bangs like on hours. and on and on and on and on, but, and they go round and round and round, just burning screen time. And it's just like Marvel... I mean, Netflix need to sort their shit out with these things because they have not had a decent run on this since, I would say, Jessica Jones se- season one. So... Daredevil season one, great. Jessica Jones season one, great. Every single one after that has been, at best, average. At worst, Iron Fist, unwatchable. Yeah, like first half of Iron Man season one. Sorry, of Iron Fist... Uh, no, wait, the other one. Daredevil? The other one. The one you were Jessica just Jessica Jones? About. No, Luke, Luke Cage. Luke Cage. <laughs> yes, I'm so confused. First six episodes, first six, six, really seven good. episodes, And that's what they released to critics to review. And yeah. those were really good. Yeah. Really, really good. Really good. <laughs> and and the yeah. problem is, after that, it all goes horribly wrong. Yeah. And so maybe they should be looking at six, seven episode seasons. But then The Defenders was eight episodes and every single one of those was tedious. I, I, so, I don't agree with that. I, I, I didn't like The Defenders at all. Defenders for me was like, so the worst of all of them is Iron Feast. Iron Feast? Iron Feast. I, the, Iron, the Iron Feast that was Iron Fist. And then for me, the second worst is definitely 
the defenders. I, I didn't particularly love the defenders. I didn't hate it either. I thought that it was the closest they've come yet to having episodes that don't have any filler in them, although there were still at least one or two episodes that were all filler. Wasn't there a whole episode of them eating Chinese food? No, there was a whole episode in a, in a restaurant, but they were they were holed up uh, waiting for the, the baddies to come and get them. While eating Chinese food. There may have been some eating of Chinese food, but that yeah. doesn't... Why does that make it a bad thing? I mean, it's true. The whole of the first Hobbit film was basically them having breakfast, so... Yeah. Yeah, um, they, but we've, we've, uh, yes. we've digressed How the cage. have but we digressed? The football, we started with the football I came, I watched the football You mansplained it to me all the way through When I asked what the little men were doing And you told me and you explained to me Why they were kicking the ball And then throwing it in from the side of the field And, uh, and you explained to me who everyone was Which was good And then confused me by saying the little man in the, 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 From the, the evil people What were they called? Croatia for the, That little man actually plays for Liverpool Which kind of blew my mind but, you know, generally speaking, I found it to be quite gripping. I was promised at some point they'd wheel three lines out, and that didn't happen. I had the whole scene from Gladiator in my head, you yes. know, it would be more interesting, but that, yes. didn't, that didn't come to pass. But did other you, than that... Did you like the fact that the, uh, the goodies were wearing white and the baddies were wearing black? It like was that? on the nose. It was quite, it was quite on the nose, <laughs> bit, yes, yeah. I thought. Yeah. But, uh, but generally... The, the good baddie, Dejan Lovren, who plays for Liverpool, okay. so he has a bit of nuance to, yes. his, to his character arc. Yeah, I see. See, he's, he's been much maligned in the past, and so he's on a very redemptive... Think of him as the Darth Vader of the World <laughs> Cup. So uh, he's been, in, in the past, been responsible for not quite blowing up Alderaan, but in football terms... Conceding goals against Spurs is, is not far he's off. He's choked out some officers. He has, and yeah. now he's he's on a redemptive arc, and so we can expect him to sacrifice his life so his son can score the winner. I don't listen. Listen, I didn't know where I was going with this when I started. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with it now. So let's just move on. to What else. interested me as someone yes. who doesn't like sport of any kind, definitely doesn't enjoy football, is the emotional roller coaster you go on. Like even as someone who, like me, is not hugely invested, like it was so exciting and the room was electric and everyone was so happy. Like because England were one up and it was the, the winning and and it was like this is great. And then when they started losing, it was like being in the middle of the biggest downer you've like everyone was like open a vein depressed for, for that part and it was like like extra time it was like being at a funeral like everyone was just like well it's basically over isn't it it's, it's i mean it's over it's finished we're out it's done and like everyone was like, it was it was it was interesting to me yeah you know? uh you, you you're back for more in a couple of years time i mean we'll see <laughs> we'll see i'm not promising anything yeah, yeah. I'm just time. saying I will on the weekend be watching Golds one to three <laughs> and seeing how I feel at the end of that. Wow, yeah. that's that's definitely going to then possibly FIFA yeah. pitch. I was in set of Goals one and two. Uh, goal two sure. was filmed in Madrid with the oh, cooperation okay, of Real Madrid. Goal three was filmed in Nottingham. <laughs> Not quite the same. No. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's a question. This question comes from email and it comes from Ross in Aberdeen, and he asks, "I've just watched. Oh, hang on." Aberdeen. I've just watched Infinity War for the fourth time <laughs> in a mobile cinema. It's a hate crime. Called yeah. Screen Machine in picturesque Gary Locke in the Northwest Highlands of Scotland. I wondered where the team would say is the most beautiful location they have watched a film, either big screen or small. You sound exactly like a Scot playing a Spaniard who's really an Egyptian. <laughs> That's extraordinary Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez impression. <laughs> my name is Ross in Aberdeen. You killed my father. Prepare to die! That was confusing. That was. Um, um, so, Sorry, Ross in Aberdeen. <laughs> I hope he sounds exactly like that. I hope every time he opens his mouth in Aberdeen, people are like, where are you from? <laughs> 
Well, I was born here, but then I moved away for a little bit. Anyway, I don't even know what people in Aberdeen sound like. I presume like that. (laughs) I presume like that. I presume they sound like that. Exactly like that. What was the question? I have no idea. Most uh, okay. beautiful place you've ever seen a Most film. Most beautiful place we've ever seen a film. Well, any place is showing a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie <laughs> gets my vote. Uh, uh, I've seen a lot of the outdoor screenings at Somerset House and in Hyde Park. Um, Somerset House is very good. I remember, I think the first one I saw there was The Thing. And in that Ooh. opening scene with the helicopter, a helicopter actually flew overhead and it felt very interactive and I enjoyed that very immensely. Nice. Wow, that's yeah, cool. That cool. Didn't, uh, when they did Flash Gordon at Somerset House, didn't Brian yes. Blessed come out and go, Gordon's alive? Yes, and then uh, he was sitting like, he was sitting like, two rugs over from me um, and, and you know, basically chorused along with all of his own lines and the whole place went mental for him any time he appeared on screen. That it was lovely. Really Doing a, lovely. a blessed commentary. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't need a microphone, does he? No, he, he, doesn't. he can just go for it. Here's, a, here's a something I was wondering about the other day. I'm going to ask you guys now. Um, is Brian Blessed a good actor? Like, is he considered a good actor? Because I think most people perceive of him as just Brian Blessed, who shouts a lot, and I don't know whether I think he's seen as something of a punchline, mm. certainly cinematically speaking. But do like his peers in acting and acting? Like, is he a great Shakespearean actor? Is he fantastic on the stage? Well, Brano obviously writes him. He had him in Much Ado About Nothing. Much Ado About Nothing, and I think he was in Henry V as well. Actually, he? <laughs> so, so that's a yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering. Our readers once voted him uh, the actor most likely to resemble God. <laughs> That's a fact. He's we, done all those Christian things on poll. TV, and, so. we, and he gave us a quote. We called him up and told him, and he was very pleased. Um, um, but best place seen a film. I mean, there are certain screening rooms that I'm slightly in love with. Like, there's the executive screening room at Warner Brothers, uh, which has like Lazy Boys in it, which is mm. quite nice. I'm not um, sure that's beautiful. It's, yeah. just it's not beautiful. Or as uh, the Soho House one has little lamps by all of the desks. Yeah, that's a beautiful that's screening quite, room. It has little footstools for you. That yeah. is nice. nice. That is nice. To be clear, um, we're not fancy enough to be members of Soho House, but they do have some yeah, press have screenings, screenings there. there. Yeah. Although but I would went, be willing to accept free memberships should some come our way. And this is sure. not me shilling for Odeon. I went to my first Odeon Lux recently. I've never been to one before. And they have lazy, those electric Lazy Boy things where you have they recline and the footrest comes up. Went to the one off Leicester Square mm. and saw Ocean's 8. And oh, yeah, I've been to those. Yeah, there it's, yeah. Um, Pretty impressed. Good. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. impressed. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, I, I was quite taken by that. Very I, good. I think it's probably some... I'm, I'm remembering being at some really stunning outdoor ones and I'm worried that I'm forgetting where they were. So just carry on among yourselves. Outdoor things is a, is, is a growing... It's a mixed Market, bag. It? It's a mixed bag because that's more of an experience. You're like you're hanging out with friends, or it's a secret cinema. So there's shit going on. But in terms of actual audiovisual fidelity, oh it, my goodness, it's, AV it's, club. I mean, not being funny, it's not the IMAX screen at the Cineworld Leicester Square, is it? With the laser projection and you, it's, yeah. not, it's not. But it's not perfectly THX calibrated Atmos sound. No, but know. the atmosphere, like. Uh, seeing a film in a beautiful place is is has a magic of another sort, which is which is nice. I saw Kundun in a, a vegetarian restaurant made out. <laughs> no, <laughs> it, was ma- ma- it was a former slaughterhouse, which has been converted into a uh, vegetarian restaurant, and it is in the bush in Byron Bay in Australia. Uh, and I watched it while sitting on some weird okay. rug thing there. That's a bit weird. But, yeah, but it was quite, but, quite, you know, felt a bit Buddhist. They were burning incense. There were people banging bowls and stuff. It was uh-huh. Again, did that enhance your 
Well, I, I, I am the only person I know who enjoys Martin Scorsese's Kundun, so perhaps that's why. Perhaps it did. Yeah, 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 I think Martin Scorsese quite likes it. He probably does. I went to the Cinerama Dome last time I was in LA, and I loved that. I thought that was magic. It's the okay. one with the sort of wraparound kind is of that, screen. Is that indoor or outdoor? It's indoor. And, what did you um, see? I went uh, that one. Uh, well, the only, the only thing that was on that I could get to was Ready Player One because we don't we can't have everything in this life. But still, it was it was it was a good experience to see it on there. I also went to the Egyptian uh, and saw uh, Laurel and Hardy's Sons of the Desert at the Egyptian, which oh, was nice. wonderful. Nice, um, and that's a beautiful cinema. And I like it a lot. I like I like those kind of old school classic sort of cine palace cinemas which you know to an extent we have in London. Like I feel yeah. like there's there's traces of that yeah. still in the Odeon West End and so on. I, for some reason, I took this question to mean outdoor experiences, but it doesn't really. But when you say beautiful location, mm. my, my mind just goes to watching films outdoor, outdoors, uh, which is... Uh, so uh, a few years ago, 2000 and, hmm, 2002, I'm going to say it was, I went to see Scooby-Doo, and it was in Crete. Uh, it was the worldwide junket for Scooby-Doo. Junket is where they all the journalists from across the world come in and they see the film and then they interview the actors. And uh, so they flew loads of the world's press to Crete to watch this horrendous pile of shit. And so they decided that it would be best to cushion the blow for everybody by taking us to this incredible amphitheatre. Ye olde amphitheatre. Cool. I don't even know the name of it because I'm, I'm so terrible. But it was like obviously thousands of years old. Or maybe just custom built by Dolby to look really, really old. <laughs> and uh, so we sat and we watched in this glorious historic location Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo. We watched, um, what's his face, Matthew Lillard faff around with a CG dog. Mm. You just reminded me when you talk about Crete, which is an island, yeah. which is surrounded by the sea, that I saw dead Cam mm-hmm. on an old, old wooden boat. Wow. Yeah, it was at the what? Glasgow Film Festival a couple of years back and uh, I was up there for uh, Joss Whedon. That's and, cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Actually. It was very cool. Didn't also. they have a screening of Jaws at Cannes one year where everyone went out in little boats and they had the screen was in the water and you had you were like f- f- sort of floating in your in your little boats watching the film. Cannes has something called uh, Cinema de la Plage, uh, which, as we know, it means cinema on the plage. So you're on the beach in Cannes and they have this big screen and they they have films on there every night. Mm-hmm. And sounds a lot like a cinema on the plage and. I saw Dirty Harry on the beach with an introduction you by saw on Clint the beach? East. Dirty Harry on the beach, which is the lesser-known <laughs> sequel, where everybody's dying. <laughs> yeah. Did of I eat five ice? Yeah. Comes just <laughs> after Dirty Harry Mission to Moscow. <laughs> yeah. Did I eat five ice creams or only six? It's Dirty Harry on his holidays. He's having a laugh. And he's walking down. There's a scene where uh, Clint's walking down the street. He's wearing just his budgie smugglers, and he's got his no. he's got his big magnum shoved right down I mean, it. I was making a literary joke about Neville shoots. Neville I know you on were the beach, but I know yeah. you were. Okay. Helen, we're always here to lower the tone. Yeah. Then as Dirty Harry goes to prison, <laughs> Dirty Harry uh, saves Christmas. There's the whole the Dirty whole Harry franchise. Dirty Harry hard Brexit. It's, uh, <laughs> Dirty. it's extraordinary that one. Oh dear. Anyway, so Clint uh, introduced the film and that was pretty That's pretty damn cool. special. That's pretty cool. Oh, I saw Jaws on the beach in Cannes but not and that was introduced by Richard Dreyfuss. Oh, good. Cool. A Secret Cinema is one thing that springs to mm. mind. Yeah. Yeah. They did, like, I remember I really enjoyed the... Although, no, then I, this, is, this is just... This, I don't come out of this story well. I mean, <laughs> but that, I could say that of any story I tell. Pretty, pretty much. much. But uh, when we oh, went to see... Jinx. 
can't speak. <laughs> Secret cinema, Empire Strikes Back. And we went through and we had our Lando's chicken and we waved our lightsabers and we did all the things you had to do. Then we chilled out in the cantina. And then we went downstairs and watched the film. And it was, it was you were there, weren't you? And I was with I've Nick. I've never been to Secret Cinema. No, okay, so it was me and Nick and we were sitting there and they started Empire Strikes Back. We watched about 10 minutes. <laughs> and Nick was just like, these people keep running backwards and forwards, meaning the stormtroopers. It's very distracting. <laughs> and then I was like, this sound system really isn't very good. And he was like, and look, it's slightly out of focus. And we literally said... Should we just go and watch it? <laughs> and we got up and we left because the quality of the projection oh my God. wasn't what we were looking for. And I just thought that genuinely made us the worst people Yeah, alive. you're the worst people. Because yeah. went... it was an amazing event. Like, the whole thing they put on was spectacular. Yeah. And yet the, the AV file in me just, it wasn't doing it. I went to Secret Cinema Wings of Desire when it really was secret. And, and I hadn't seen Wings of Desire before going. Okay. So I was a bit like, What's with this theme? I don't understand why there are people in trench coats and yet also people who seem to be trapeze artists. So, I don't how, see how do the they connection. know? Hmm? How do they know what to wear if they don't know what the film is? No, not not the punters, but like oh, the people who were like there. The actors. And it was in January and it was in a sort of disused theatre in Shepherd's Bush. And they'd done it up all beautifully and I finally figured out what we were there for and that was cool. Um, and the, the trapeze artists were wonderful and, and very impressive and everything else. Um, but it was so cold. Like, they told us to wrap up warm. So I was wearing all of the layers and all of the coat and the, and the gloves and the scarves and the hat. And I had blankets with me for me and my friend and we basically huddled up under these blankets and were still utterly freezing the entire <laughs> way through, which somewhat took away from the whole experience. Yeah. Uh, I haven't gone to the Somerset House stuff very often because you have to lie on those cold, That's why hard you bring, cobblestones. This is, I mean, people laugh at me. You know, I've gotten grief when I'm going to the open-air cinema or, or open-air theatre or the or Somerset House for carrying, like, two bags full of cushions and blankets, but that is the mm. only way to do it. All right, if you want to have your question read out on the Emperor Podcast, you can do so via a number of methods, as Ross and Aberdeen found to his great cost. We're on email, podcast at empireonline.com. You can also tweet us where we're at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast or chances are we won't see it. And then, of course, we're on Facebook as well, Empire Magazine. Okay, time now for this week's first guest. He is the director of some animated classics, including, oh, let me see, The Iron Giant. Not bad. Pretty damn great. Ratatouille. Pretty damn great. The Incredibles. Also pretty damn great. Not pretty damn incredible? No, I was just sticking with the theme. Oh, I see. But now he is back, back, back in the bosom of Pixar, quite rightly so, because he's part of the Pixar Brain Trust, and he is directing Incredibles 2, the long-awaited 14 years after the fact sequel to The Incredibles. It is out this Friday. And when he came into the uh, pod booth, he was here to talk to Johnny Pyle. I was here in a producing capacity, basically just making sure everything was recording and, and working okay. But me being me, I naturally couldn't resist the chance to chime in with a question or two. So here you go, Johnny and a little bit of me talking to the great Brad Bird. Enjoy. Brad Bird, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about The Incredibles 2. Or or Incredibles 2. It's lost the The, the definite article. Yeah, yeah. Was that a, uh, a big decision for you to, to lose it? When you did know, you lose it? it was contentious. Uh, empires rose and fall over that one. Right, thing. okay. No, it, it's actually not a big deal. Right, okay. It just sounds better, I think. Yeah. So the sequel, it's uh, been a long time coming, but has it always been on the cards? Uh, the most fun I ever had making a film so far, I haven't made that many, this is my sixth. Um, the Incredibles was the most fun I ever had making a movie, and I think it's partially because it's the only time I've gotten to take one of my original ideas from like a kernel to completion. You right. know, everything else has had 
some other life outside of me. You know, Iron Giant was a book, as you guys know. We and, do, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. And uh, um, even though I changed the story a lot, the core of it was still the relationship between this boy and the giant. And, of course. And uh, Jan uh, Pinkova came up with the idea for Ratatouille. And so yeah. uh, Mission Impossible is Mission Impossible. And Tomorrowland was um, Dame Lindelof and Jeff Jensen's idea. And, and I got uh, uh, lured in and, and uh, really was entran- uh, entranced by it. So uh, I've... Um, this is the only idea of, of mine that I've gotten to take. So I always thought I would return to it, yeah. Right, okay. And presumably Pixar on the phone all the time, like, make another, make another, uh, make another. No, they were surprisingly not pushy about it, which is one of the reasons I love Pixar, is that they were like, when you're ready, we're ready. Right. And that's cool. That doesn't happen very much these days. When something makes money, it's almost like they chain you to it and and, and flog you into doing another one right away. And it's like... Right. Uh, that's okay, but I, I don't think it's creatively as interesting as jumping around. So Pixar indulged my jumping around. And okay. then suddenly 14 years escaped, and, and I had worked on it on and off. I, I remember working on the opening sequence with The Underminer with Ted Mathot, who was our story supervisor on the film, before I did Mission. Right. So, so I was dabbling with it, you know, uh, on and off. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought I would do another one. And when did that decision to finally make it Well, come? I had the core idea, which was the, the role switch, where Helen gets offered the assignment uh, instead of Bob. Yeah. I had that when we were publicizing the first film. And I thought, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll have fun with that. And it was mainly like, this will mess Bob up, and this will bring up a side of Elastigirl that you see at the beginning of the first movie, where she says, I have no intention of settling down. Why would I do that? Yeah. And uh, it let that side of her come out again. Um, I also knew I had the unexploded bomb of Jack-Jack, of that, that the audience knew that he had multiple powers, but the Parr family did not. And the best time for that to be revealed to them is when Bob is put in charge of the family, because yeah. it makes it triply hard for him to handle. Uh, I knew the, uh, you know, the, the Incredible was going to make an appearance and I knew that uh, there are assorted other little things. I, the raccoon fight was an idea that Teddy Newton had for the original that we didn't have a place for that I loved. And, uh, and, but I didn't have the, uh, the superhero villain thing. And right. uh, uh, when I finally thought I had a really good idea to bring that together, I, I pitched it to Pixar. They loved it. Uh, I got uh, release date. I got uh, producers, and we all started moving. And about five months in, I realized that's not going to work for the, the other part of the story that I want to tell. Right. Okay. So, what was that original? Um, it involved. Bad guy? I won't say what it is because uh, I might want to use it in something else. But it involved AI. Right. Okay. And uh, it, it was cool. I mean, it, it could be a cool movie, but yeah. it it wasn't this movie. Right. And so I kept switching that around. And that changed constantly. And there are bits of various versions uh, combined into what is in the theaters now. Okay. Uh, but uh, uh, the it was elusive to me. And then I didn't realize until about a week ago when I was talking about it that the villain for the original film came last and changed. I came uh, to Pixar. It's the only time somebody has come in with designs and with a story and characters, the look of it already done. I had paid for the artwork myself um, with several of the artists that came up and with me to do the film. And uh, 
the villain that I came with for the first one was different than the villain that we ended up with. Okay. And then in the process of trying things, uh, I had an alternate opening of the film where we introduced Syndrome and killed him off in the opening sequence. And everyone... Oh, he died. Oh, yeah. And everyone uh, really liked uh, that villain more than the one that we had. And hey, so, he's a great villain. So then I had to kind of come up with a reason why he's, you know, the villain in this. Yeah. And uh, there was this book uh, that uh, Burt Ward wrote about uh, Adam West, I guess. Oh, right, the original Robin, uh, 60s was, TV Robin. Yeah, the TV Robin. And uh, he kind of... He kind of was bagging on Adam West a little bit, like, right. like you know, I got more chicks than Adam West did, you know, and I sensed this weird resentment, yeah. and I thought that would be a good motivation, you know, a yeah. kind of a spurned sidekick deal, so uh, that became the backstory for this character that was originally killed off, and we didn't end up doing that opening sequence, but... We got the villain out of it. So the villain came late in the first film, too. Right, okay. I don't know what it is. There's no magical logic to it or te- technique. It's just that's the way it happened. Right, okay. I mean, do, um, do Pixar, they have a panel that you present to quite regularly, right? Um, I mean, is that, that sounds is that more, uh, 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 you know, judgmental than it really is. Right, you know? okay. We have a star chamber where you come into a darkened room. It's kind of like <laughs> Thunderball. You know, Spectre, is someone is stroking a cat and you never get a clear look at their face. No, it's not like that at all. It's, it's a lot more friendly. In fact, right, okay. for me, pitching the first Incredibles to Pixar... Um, you know, I had to pitch it because I still owned it and they were not set up to do that. They were set up to hire people and then people have ideas and, right, and, okay. and I said, I can't pretend that I don't have an idea that I want to make. I can't, you know, yeah. I remember having this meeting with Steve Jobs where he didn't want me to pitch the idea. He said, well, we're really more interested in having talent come up here and then, you get comfortable and you, you come up with an idea and then we make it. And I said, you want me to pretend I don't have an idea that I want to do? I have an idea. I have drawings. I have designs. I have yeah. a plot. I have an outline. I'm ready to go. And I said, it's okay if you don't want to make it. I'll make it somewhere else. And he's and so like, all right. And so I started pitching it. What an odd thing. Yeah, like, it you is just odd. lose six months of development, wouldn't you? <laughs> That's cost what I millions thought. of dollars. I thought it was kind of good that I you know, had it. But uh, it was not the way they were set up. So... We had to formalize a meeting, you know, um, and and they had to change their protocol and all this stuff. And, right. And I ended up pitching, and it was like it was like pitching to a bunch of pals from CalArts. They were yeah. just, you know, the they were laughing and and they were throwing ideas in, like, oh, you could do this. And the ideas weren't stupid ideas; they were like right in the line with the kind of movie I wanted to make. Well, these are talented guys, right? Yeah, but it's not like an exact thing where you know, can he have a surfboard and a dog? You know, oh, yeah, I mean, this would really work for this demographic, that kind of thing. Yeah, or just, you know, I noticed that people really love gel in their hair. Can the characters have gel in their <laughs> hair in this? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, their uh, their um, jokes and things that they were pitching were exactly in tune with, with the movie I wanted to make. Great. So it was painless, you know? And at that point, you know you're at the right studio, right? Yeah, yeah. So so it, it gets sometimes depicted as a star chamber. I mean, the the name Brain Trust is, which is what it's the group is called. Yeah, sounds sort of ominous and and humorless and strange. You know, um, it's really a lot more friendly than that. Right, and okay. relaxed. And and notes aren't mandatory. Uh, um, if there's a problem, the 
uh, that is pointed out, the problem needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. But how you address it is kind of up to you. People will pitch ways to address it and maybe yeah. you'll use them, maybe you won't. But it's not mandatory. And Pixar at its best stays in that wheelhouse. Right, okay. Do you think the, uh, the, the term itself, brain trust, needs to be put before the brain trust? And, and, and workshopped, sure. Yeah. I think a better uh, – you, you think Star Chamber? I think started, the Pixar Star Chamber works for me. Uh, I noticed I noticed on Avengers Infinity War that the Marvel have a brain trust as well, Marvel Studios, and they call themselves the Marvel Studios Parliament. Now, oh, that's okay. worse. That seems too grand for me. Yes, I agree. I didn't know that. This is all news to me. I think that's very pretentious. So, uh, yeah. I, look, I think brain trust is pretentious, but that was kind of thrust on us rather than we came up with it. We, we're just like, eh, let's let's see what everyone's doing. It's more like that. It's more like fellow artists kind of mm-hmm. looking o- over each, o- each other's shoulders and offering fresh, fresh eyes. Absolutely. I mean, that kind of thing is what Del Toro and Cuaron and Inaritu do for each other. And they're ruthless. Yeah. You know, um, I don't, I've met the other two and had great conversations with them, but I know Guillermo pretty well. Yeah. And uh, Guillermo's, you know, feeling of it is more like they're just really ruthless critics in the way that only your best friends are allowed <laughs> to be ruthless. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I think that's really healthy. I mean, look at the films they make, you know. Yeah. It, apparently something is working. Does a brain trust work in a similar way? Is there a, if there's a dissenting voice, what happens then? I mean, it you... just depends on, on the argument and sometimes on how the argument is is presented. I mean, you can persuade a room if, if you make the right argument. And sometimes people take a moment to digest like that's a really different way of thinking about it and then someone says you know that could work because of duh and then people start piling on yeah and then they could da 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 and then it starts being like firecrackers so it almost feels like a a writing room kind of but it's not um it's there's nothing um man there's nothing mandatory about it it's it's kind of more like here's some fresh eyes and and people say i was confused about this and it's done in a manner that's helpful it's not yeah. accusatory or anything like that not, everybody there's no knows one-upmanship. no and everybody knows how hard it is to make movies and everyone has struggled with the part where you're just like oh god what am i doing yeah. you know it's hard and and it's nice to have people who have been there one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the uh, the, the new cast of uh, superheroes that you have coming in. I mean, there's a, a lot of uh, very weird people in that, the bird guy and the reflux guy. Sure. Um, They're kind just, of second tier superheroes. Yeah, I'm just wondering yeah. about um, you know the, the process of coming up with them. Presumably lots of ideas were thrown out and fell by the wayside. Yeah, I had, I had some of the ideas myself. A void I, I had. Yeah, uh, uh, that's the, a really useful know. power. It is cool, yeah. Um, but... Um, but yeah, a reflux was uh, someone's idea, and, and his name was originally GERD, and I think it stands for gastrointestinal <laughs> upset or, or right. reflux disorder. I think yeah. it is. And I said, no, it sounds like a name. It sounds like a really terrible name. It's got to sound like superheroy, and so we came up with reflux, which sounds kind of like Aeon flux. You know, it sounds yeah. kind of cool until you actually think about what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no, yeah, there was definitely a lot of pitches and a lot of laughing. Um, yeah. when we had the ideas. And obviously all the reviews have come out in the States uh, a while ago because it's been out in the States. It's not out here yet. Uh, but are you a guy who 
waits for the reviews to drop and then goes to them? Are you a guy who I watches the be. box office numbers come in? No, I used to be, and now it just I just try to stay away from it all. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't seem to help me. There's nothing I can do, good or bad, in reaction yeah. to it. Um, so I just kind of, you know, I get the general gist if my my friends are sort of smiling then i know things right. are good okay. and if they're yeah. giving me a slightly grim like you'll be okay eventually yeah look. you'll work again yeah one day. yeah you'll work again one day look then i know it hasn't gone as well so but uh no i i think that it's um uh it, it's at best a distraction from real work right and there was a, that was that guy who went to the cinema dressed as frozen this weekend did you see him i saw a video yeah, yeah. he looked really a lot like frozen yeah he kind of he kind of rocked the suit. I mean, I yeah, thought. I mean that is a difficult suit to, to pull, pull off. off. I would not wear that suit. Shape. I don't know if Chris would you wear that suit particularly? No, uh, it, 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 no, my, with man, my figure, no, it wouldn't work for me. I would I'm love more, to see that. I'm more honestly a more Mister Incredible kind of figure <laughs> without without the <laughs> well, huge guns. Before I'm, before or after before. He, he works out. <laughs> yeah, before very much okay. before. <laughs> I think we both are. And I think there's no shame in saying that. <laughs> oh yeah, come on, yeah. Um, so, Brad, obviously, the last two films you made before this were were live action, and you flitted back and forth between animation and live action. Are you are you still hoping to go back into live action? Are you back? Oh in animation yeah, yeah. Full the time? next project I want to do is live action. It has some animation in in mm. it, and we'll see if I can get it, uh, you know, financed and people persuaded to back it. But it's something I wanted to make for a long time. Is so, this nineteen oh six? Is it? No, it is not actually. Uh-huh. But I still do hope. Yeah, the rebuilding. <laughs> okay. uh, that that would be a fairly tedious uh, thing, <laughs> it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, no, it's. Uh, I do hope to make that one day too, as well. And the right time for it will, you know, maybe come around. Right. Okay. I mean. Um, obviously, you made a Mission Impossible, uh-huh. um, and Chris McQuarrie has broken with tradition. And isn't, you, know, you can now do multiple Mission Impossibles. I guess the rule has changed. Yeah, you know. No, I, I think the reason that uh, I liked the original film was that they embraced uh, the the original. I I loathe this world word, but I I guess I have to say it. The, the franchise. Yeah. Um, it burns. You can, <laughs> um, can you say series? What else can we use? Uh, there must be something else. The films. We'll yeah. just say that. The yeah. Mission Impossible films. The brand. They, um, I was trying to do 1906. It was proving to be really difficult um, just to corral the story together and to uh, get it to work as both uh, explore the world but do it in in a film-sized box and all these things. That were, were a big problem with that, that big challenge, I should say, with that particular project. And finally, I looked up, and it was kind of like Incredibles 2, where it's too, too much time has gone by, and you just go, crap, I better get to work. And yeah. so I, I looked around for things that were ready to go. Yeah. And those tend to be sequels and things that studios, that studios want to make. You mm-hmm. know, studios don't go, let's do a rodeo film that's a musical. You know, they <laughs> when, don't, when is that coming? Uh, well, that is probably, uh, probably in the works right now and uh, being shut down immediately. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I looked around, and there were several kind of franchisey things, reboots, yeah. remakes, sequels, the like, that I, could, uh, that, that I was offered. And Mission had uh, Tom Cruise, which Tom had always 
Tom met with me after The Incredibles, the first one, and said, if you're ever interested in doing live action, I'd love to make something with you. And so that was like a, a, a one bonus right there was I wanted to work with Tom Cruise. Yeah. And the other thing was um, that the mission films embraced the differences between filmmakers rather than trying to get the filmmakers to do a house style and fit in. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the Brian De Palma one is very different from the John Woo one. And the I mean, John really Woo, different. Uh, the John are. Woo one is very different from the yeah. JJ one. And JJ's is different from mine and, and the others. The fact that it embraced a lot of different film styles, it was not seen as a disadvantage, it was seen as a feature, right. was really good for me as yeah. a filmmaker because it meant that I could make my mission impossible and, and make it, you know, uh, unique. Yeah. And, and uh, so it was a fun project. You know, it was a big challenge to do because it was giant and it was on five continents or something like yeah. that. And, uh, you know, it's th- those movies are hard, yeah. and complex, but it was also it's the kind of thing that fascinates me. You know, for better or for worse, I like big things. Yeah. And um, they're puzzles and there's a lot of ways to do them badly yeah. or to do them in yeah. a way that feels like a corporation did them rather than an individual. And uh, when someone can kind of, you know, put their own stamp on a f- films of that size, you know, I think it's really fun to watch. Great. I mean, it was, it's not like you're having to second guess, like, do I have enough slow motion doves here? Like you can, <laughs> you can simply do what you feel is right in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they said right up front, you know, uh, uh, Tom and, and JJ said right up front, if there's anything you want, ever wanted to do in a spy movie and haven't done, this is your chance, you yeah. know? And of the six things that I wanted to do, I got to do five. Right. And the sixth one I could have done, but it didn't fit the story, but I still want to do, I like the idea and I'm going to get it in something. Can you tell us what it is? Probably no, no. Not, I mean, no, I'm not. not going to. <laughs> we would steal it for our spy movie. Yeah, that's right. You tweet it out and then it would show up next week on yeah. some TV show. Can you I mean, see? What, what done the... badly, by the way. <laughs> All yeah. right, okay, yeah. yeah. What were the five things you wanted to do that you got Well, in one of them was uh, I wanted the equipment to break down. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I wanted it, them to constantly be in positions where they were relying on it to work and then it didn't work. And they had to improvise. The other thing I wanted to do was feature the the crew more than had been done in the other films. Um, and uh, Tom was absolutely cool with that. He he wasn't like, no, every scene must be about me. He was like, <laughs> oh, that's cool. But you know, if if someone doesn't aggressively go for something, he's going to go for it. Yeah. Like you know, hey, what if somebody can be a parasail? I'll be a parasail. You know, I mean, he's <laughs> he's like that. He's like an eager. You know, uh, but he's not excluding anyone. He loved uh, it go- falling to other characters and, yeah. and, and being more of a team film, I, um, which is more like the TV show. Yeah, you know? of course. Uh, another one is I wanted to have a, uh, a chase um, in a sandstorm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, um, there was this photo of a Shamal, which is the sandstorms that they have down there. I was trying to... I was trying to depict how tall the the Burj was because the Burj was part of the plan when I got on it. They yeah. they had planned to do uh, something on the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building yeah. in the world, and I was trying to show come up with a visual that shows how tall it really is because it's almost twice as tall as the Empire State Building. Oh and, yes, yeah, I mean, and and crazy big, right? And so I wanted to show that it was above the clouds, you know. And some of those images got into the new Incredibles, by the way, um, but. Uh, one of the producers, uh, Jeffrey Chernoff, brought in uh, another photo and said, um, here's a shot of it above a sandstorm. And I said, um, 
a sandstorm has we should have a chase in a sandstorm and you know the thing is is that um that's a, a really over the top idea that they would get you know have a chase right when a sandstorm hits but yeah. the reason it works and nobody questions it cuz nobody's ever criticized like yeah what are the chances that the <laughs> sandstorm is going to hit right at the climax of this thing is because you show it coming yeah. you show it way off and they talk about it and then they forget about it just like the audience does. So yeah. then they, when it hits, the audience doesn't question it. But it's the reason that I stop the presses to say, hey, what's that? Well, what is it? It's just a sandstorm. Don't worry. It's a long way off. That's saying yeah. – that's planning the idea so that the, then when it hits, the audience accepts it, which is a crazy over-the-top – sure, a sandstorm yeah. is going to hit right at the exact <laughs> – point that everything goes to sh- like the storm crap. hitting the island in jurassic park and things are just these filmmaking things yeah, but, that you do behind the scenes that yeah but they set that up too they yeah. say it's coming you know yeah you're setting this up in the same yeah. way and like these little tricks that we're yeah. like wow how have they done that and you're like always thinking yeah and i won't go into the other two but very quickly i mm. wanted to make it more comedic than the other mission impossibles right. and be able and, and tom was totally down for that we were both um you know, silent movie fans and talked about uh, silent comedy, you know, like Harold Lloyd and, and, and uh, you know, Keaton and Chaplin. Yeah. And so we wanted to get some of those elements in the climb and, and stuff like that. And he was absolutely a, a willing co-conspirator. Right. I mean, well, Tom Cruise, working with him must be like um, the closest you can get to a live action uh, animation, right? Because you just like, run up that building, Tom. He's like, absolutely no problem. I'll <laughs> do it. There's, only there's, there's one things- building? <laughs> <laughs> you want me to, you know, I mean, he's absolutely, if there was a way to be 200% all in, that's the way he yeah. is. Yeah. I've spoken to Chris McQuarrie at, at some length about uh, strapping crews to the, the side of a plane and watching right. it take off eight times uh, <laughs> yeah. for that opening sequence. And after eight times, he's likely to say, you sure you got it? Yeah. You know, I think <laughs> yeah. I could do it better if we get a, a ninth time. Yeah, that's him. That's him. Do you still wake up at three in the morning sometimes going... I had the most, the biggest star in the in the world. Oh yeah, on top no, of the tallest building had, in the world. That, I, I actually that happened on one of those nights where I just realized, oh, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> yeah, but he, I guess he wants to do this, so. Okay. Yeah. He's strapped in. He, he's you're strapped, strapped in, Tom, right? Yeah, okay. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're good, we're good. Um, <laughs> One of the great things about animation is that it allows you to pick up Incredibles 2 where The Incredibles uh, ends <coughs> off. Yes. That means also you can come back as Edna Moe. But were you, were you tempted to explore that 14-year gap at all? In, Never. In, in I, I know that fans, you know, were, that's where they were going. But, you know. No, why? I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, far more why? interesting. Why? For, far more interesting to me to pick up the second the last yeah. film left off, even though it's been a fourteen-year gap. To yeah. me, that seems sort of bold and and uh, um, unpredictable. Yeah, I mean, there is that fourteen-year gap in terms of technology improving as well. I mean, yeah. was that a a tricky thing to to balance in terms of you have better technology to do different things, but you want to keep the look of the same one. And you want to keep it well, as a yeah. piece. Yeah, it's the same world, and um, all that it meant for us is we were able to get um, to nail uh, what we could only get close to before. We went back to the original sculpts um, that we made by hand of the characters. Right. This wonderful uh, sculptor named Kent Melton did these beautiful sculpts for the first movie, and we went back to them for this to try to better capture them. And we got close on the first film, but we didn't get we didn't get them. Right, okay. And and now we can get them. So they are they are now how we wanted to them to be 
14 years ago, but just okay. didn't have the technology. Uh, you do return as Edna Ed Mode in this. Had you forgotten how to do the voice? Or no, <laughs> do you no, just no one like lets that? me forget. <laughs> <laughs> it's a party piece now. <laughs> well, what's funny is that it's way more impressive to people than writing and directing the movie. <laughs> you know, it's like five seconds of going, yeah, that, that, you know, is like, that's far more impressive than <laughs> yeah, spending I've, I've several movies. years, yeah. you know. I'm applauding now. That was good. We, got, we got a brief No, snippet. no, it wasn't really one doesn't count <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a it was a nanosecond brad i'm taking yeah, it i'm taking right, it okay. i'm taking it brad bird it's been a pleasure thank you thank so much you. for coming in thank you thank you okay time now to talk about this week's movie news what's been happening helen so much um well i don't know where to start should we start with uh, I, the I know joker you, you know oh, okay no you know what start there Do okay that. let's start with the joker they, it has been rumored for a long time but the joaquin phoenix starring joker movie is now set to start shooting in september todd phillips is uh directing as predicted it's all it's all actually a thing woo and dare i say it who you don't yeah. sound i just too i mean i'm 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 far whelmed. more interested in seeing this than i am in seeing Jared Leto reprise the role, like because that is a film that the world doesn't need. But this one could be mental, so sure. But I just think I don't. I don't understand the. I don't understand why have one that's DCEU, one that's not DCEU, and have them both. I mean, it seems again not wishing to alienate our DC fan listeners. It does feel a lot like just there is no coherent thought going. Well, on I think there. I mean the 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 approach now from the studio chief. He's he's on record now as saying, look. The important thing is to make a good film. We're not going to worry about how they all tie together. We just want to make each one good, which is... How's that a, going so far? Well, it's a better approach than the let's tie them all together without making them good. Admittedly. So, um, fingers crossed. So, this is uh, this is written by, I think, Phillips with Scott Silver, uh, who worked on The Fighter, um, which is pretty good. The Finest Hours, which is all right. Um, Eight Mile... So he's not not a terrible writer. That's that's also a good sign. Joaquin Phoenix has had very good taste in projects over the last few years. Yeah, or so you know, I've got time for him. If if rumors are to be believed, he turned down Doctor Strange. I have heard those rumors too. Or 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 had meetings about Doctor Strange. Yeah. Maybe not necessarily turning it down, but certainly went. Uh, is this something that interests me? No, but but something about the Joker and this combination of actor. Yeah, and is I'm this the, this is the one that Martin Scorsese is producing? Yes. I think people's problem with this stems from the fact that we're going to get it at the same time as a continuing yeah. DCEU, which mm-hmm. may well have, as was announced a couple of months ago, the Jared Leto Joker in his own movie as well. Yeah. So that's just a little bit too confusing. It's like, it's like what would have happened had George Miller's Justice League come to the big screen in 2007, because then we would have had Army Hammer's Batman running around at the same time as Christian Bale's yeah. Batman just a year later. And that's just weird for audiences, I find. Yeah. It could be very confusing. So Phillips has said that this will be an exploration of a man disregarded by society that is not only a gritty character study, but also a broader cautionary tale. That's an odd... Genuinely, I think I find that a little bit odd for a Joker story. I'm also... The Joker origin is a little bit... I don't think the Joker should have a definitive origin. I think he should be... Is this the one that's killing joke inspired? Yeah, which is not a definitive origin. To be clear, it's not canon. But, um, you know, I just don't... I think the danger of putting something like that on the screen is that people then adopt it and think that is the answer. And I don't think there should be any answers with the Joker really ever. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that Keith Ledger and, and Christopher Nolan got really, really right with the dark Knight. So I'm a little bit wary of this, um, but it could be great, you know? 
So. It could be. The interesting thing about uh, this film, not, the, not just the fact that Martin Scorsese is involved, but Todd Phillips is an interesting director. He's, uh, first and foremost, started off as a comedy director. Mm-hmm. And I would say he is, of the current wave of American comedy directors that we have, most comedy directors just, you know, they don't really put a lot of thought into the visuals of their movies. I would say he and Adam McKay are probably two of, and, you know, Edgar Wright, if you want to lump, lump yeah. Edgar Wright in as a comedy director for whom the visuals are incredibly important, but the Hangover movies, for all their faults, and, you know, particularly the second and third one, have huge, great, big, whacking faults, they look fantastic. And he, he's really good, I think, as well, at tone and mood and interestingly, in the likes of The Third Hangover in particular and uh, War Dogs, which isn't a very good film, but he's very good at menace. He's very good at cinematic yeah. menace. Yeah, he's... Which may be why Scorsese was drawn to this as well. Mm. Uh, maybe a sort of, you know, they feel there's some simpatico thing going on there with, with the two of them. And that's perfect for the Joker. Menace, definitely. Yeah, and I, I do, I, th- I think you're right. I think Phillips has a harder edge than most comedy directors in a and I, I don't mean this of his personality, but of, of his filmmaking, like he will go to a nastier place yeah. than than other people, uh, which, again, you need for the Joker, I think. So so it could be a very good fit. I think, you know, also maybe, you know, the Joker should be made by a comedy director. Maybe there's something in that. I don't know, maybe there's some alchemy there that can be done. Yeah. But also, I'm just fascinated. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is one of the best actors on the planet, and... He's incredible, and you were never really here gotcha. most recently. And if he fully commits to this thing, it could be up there with with Ledger, and it could be up there with Nicholson. Jesus, Jesus, and the Joker in a single year—that's a—that's an arc, <laughs> isn't it? It certainly is. You've turned me around. I now really want to see this. I mean, look—we've all been skeptical about it. We've been very skeptical about this film since its inception on the podcast, but it's happening. And I'm looking for the positives, and the positives are when the world's best actors want to do it. Todd Phillips is a really interesting director. Scorsese's involved. And as long as we can get our heads around the fact that it won't affect what's going on with the Joker. It's a bit like Marvel suddenly decided to but, cast someone else as Captain America and do a... How dare you? you know, but you know what I mean? It's like suddenly them going... At the same time as Steve Rogers is knocking around in Avengers 4, yeah. that they do a young Steve movie or a standalone Steve movie with someone completely different as Steve Rogers. It just, that's what that's how confusing it could be. Well it's not I mean it's like you've got the film flash, you've got the T V flash. So they they've got stuff running in parallel already. Weirdly I, I think just yeah, not true. being laden with all of that nonsense uh, will help this enormously. So just not having to deal with any of that shit and being self contained means they can do whatever they want and do it on their own terms. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Alright, so we talk some more casting news then. Uh Wait, yes, there's more casting news. Yes, there is more there casting is. news. There is. There's a, a double whammy of Star Wars casting news. That's exactly what I was going to say. Which is pretty exciting. Okay. Uh, first up, that uh, Lando himself, Billy D. Williams, has been confirmed for episode nine, which is what, very what? exciting. Is Indeed. this confirmed or is this rumoured to believe be confirmed? believe that one's confirmed. Uh, rumoured is that Kerry Russell is in talks for a role, but that makes absolute sense. Obviously, she's worked with Jodie before. She was his Felicity. She missed Impossible 3. She's just come off, obviously, a fantastic finale for the Americans, so she's hot, hot, hot at the moment. And she's great. So, I, don't, I mean, the people are speculating, is she going to be Ray's mom? Is he oh. desperately clawing Ray. that back from the abyss to which uh, Ryan Johnson consigned it? Uh, who knows? She's playing someone. Could could be anyone. And, and judging by Mission Impossible 3, she may not be in it super well, long yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. So let's hope she's got a bigger role this time. She's good. You know, and she's, and, but more exciting, though, is, is the Billy Dean news. That's, that's, yeah, that's really good news. Yeah, it's cool. Lando back is cool. Yeah, absolutely. 
Just give Chewbacca more screen time, you bastards. <laughs> That's all I want. Um, also, it's kind of, dare I say it, necessary. Because we are in a kind of post-original core character's world now. Obviously, we don't have Han because he's dead. We don't have Luke because he's dead. And we don't have... We do Le- have Luke. Uh, Hmm? We'll probably have Luke. Yes, we might have some Force Ghost Luke, but we don't have Luke properly. And obviously we won't have Carrie Fisher either. You know, you, I feel having someone who can better rank it to the, anchor it to the original films is certainly a smart move. I agree. Um, also in casting news, uh, very exciting news for a TV pilot. Why the Last Man, which is a terrific series of comics, has been rumoured for, uh, weirdly, a film adaptation, most, most of its sort of mm. rumour lifetime, uh, for years and years. It is finally now happening as a TV pilot. Um, and they have announced some casting news. The big headline is that Diane Lane is playing um, one of the major characters. Uh, basically, okay, so just to set this up, in the story, which is uh, by Brian K. Vaughan and Pierre Guerrera, Pierre, Pierre Guerrera, sorry, is the story of a plague that kills off every male mammal, everyone, all male people and also all, also all male animals, apart from Yorick, who's a sort of young 20-something kind of layabout, amateur magician and his pet monkey ampersand they are the only male survivors that we know of as the as the show starts obviously the world is flung into chaos by the death of half the population um one of the people trying to keep things together is senator jennifer brown who would be lane's character and uh imogen poots is her daughter yorick is actually her son he'd be played by barry keown and uh they've they've cast uh lashana lynch juliana canfield and marin ireland around them now here is my only thing about this, I think that's all good casting. It's obviously only a pilot. This is very yep. early days. I think Barry is a great actor. He was in uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer most recently, in which he is terrifically creepy and weird. And I think most of the stuff I've seen him in, certainly, he has been to some degree weird. Mm-hmm. And Yorick shouldn't really be. Yorick to me should be goofily charming. Yorick mm. to me should be a little bit sort of Michael J. Fox in the 80s. Um, just just very sort of means well, doesn't quite know what he's doing. Um, luckily has Agent 355, who's going to be Lynch's character, to help him figure that out. But he should he should be really nice. Because he's not exceptional. What makes him exceptional is he's the only dude. He's the only dude. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think, as I said, Barry's a great actor. I have not seen him play that yet. Mm. So I sort of remain to be a little bit convinced by him that he's... The Yorick in my head. I'm uber excited about this show. I loved the comics. The so comics much. are phenomenal. I read them at the same time uh, that I was reading Preacher, so it's kind of a similar Me sort too. of thing. But I'm, yes, yeah, so I'm really, I really want to see how this pans out. But I think this um, is a better and more coherent story than Preacher. Well, it has, yeah, and it, it has a very defined arc to it yeah. as well. So you can really see it, them having a sort of multiple season plan for it. And, it, and it's not quite so gonzo as Preacher. So if no. Preacher was a bit much for you, I think this is a bit more grounded in reality. It's got a mm. little bit of a Walking Dead tone, but not with a zombie menace, more yeah. the menace of what happens when society yeah. collapses. It completely breaks down and people become feral. And, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's an interesting one. Very exciting. Yeah. Speaking I, of loved properties returning, uh, Jeremy Renner has been cast in the new Spawn movie. Jeremy Renner is a loved property returning. <laughs> well, Spawn is Spawn a loved for me. property. Well, for me, because it's <laughs> one of the, like when when Image kind of like Image Comics started out. Spawn was one of their first titles, and I, in my loft somewhere, have Spawn issue one in a little mylar bag. Cause obviously, I'm that kind of person, and I really liked Spawn. Um, and the Michael Jai White fronted. Uh, 
sort of 90s adaptation didn't, dare I say it, do it justice okay. with uh, John Leguizamo as the violator. Um, it's a clown. It's not as horrid as it, it sounds. Still sounds um, but yeah, so uh, it, it, no, the violator sounds worse when you add <laughs> it's a clown. Because well, I mean, anything sounds worse yeah. when you add it's a clown. Yeah, it's a clown that's also a demon. Also, it is a clown See, that's, that's yeah. also a demon. Yeah, but working for when Mal you say, Bolger, who is basically the devil. Well, when you say it's a clown, and then you say, but it's also a demon, that's the demon is not as bad as the clown. Yeah, okay. And they're both it. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, so, you were saying. Uh, no, please, Renner please tell your story. Twitch Williams. Great. Great. A detective called Twitch Williams. And, uh, he's no Flip Zimmerman. This is to. No, he's no Flip Zimmerman, or dare I say it, Erasmus Brumble. Mm. Uh, but uh, he, is, uh, he is obviously joining Jamie Foxx, who's playing uh, Al Simmons, aka Spawn, the, uh, the man who is returned to Earth having died, but uh, he becomes a kind of an army, uh, sort of a hellspawn, a soldier in the devil's army. Mm. And, he has a, and he has a big cloak <laughs> and chains and stuff. Yeah, and he doesn't like clowns. He doesn't like clowns. Well, who among us right. does? Yeah. I'm fully on board with Al Simmons. Yeah, yeah. And the first Spawn looked absolutely terrible, but it was it was so nice. It was terrible. It was like Sorry. proto CGI. Like his cape was like, oh look, what we can do with computers. Yeah. Um, no, it didn't. It didn't really work. It wasn't good, was it? Mm. Uh, the, the, the strange they decided to remake it this year and call it Finnan. But yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Every day's Christmas Eve. Hey, speaking of beloved properties that are coming back, yeah. uh, Neil Blomkamp is venturing into that world once again after you know sweating blood and losing probably years of his life and hair on a, a sequel to Aliens. Yeah. He is venturing back and planning a sequel to Robocop, the difference being that this one appears to actually be green. And this was based on an unmade sequel to the Verhoeven one, isn't it? It's like... yeah. So this was the original writers, Ed Newmeyer and Michael Miner, uh, yeah. wrote a new script. Uh, it's, so they, they wrote a draft. It's now been handed off to Justin Rhodes, who's written also the new Terminator movie. So he is obviously your go-to guy for bringing back 80s robot films. Good stuff. Um, so, yeah, Detroit's even more mayhemic than ever. That's a word, shut up. And, <laughs> uh, and Robocop has to come back and clear out the streets. I just hope they get the tone right you know yeah. so fingers crossed yeah i mean the the remake yeah 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 jose padilla is one yeah. of the worst examples of <laughs> it's terrible it's a remake gone wrong terrible. the thing with robocop is that robocop works in the way that starship troopers works because it has that slightly kooky verhoven sense of humor and it's it's a massive work of satire and i just think like None of that made it into the, the remake at all. It was just an incredibly humorless, po-faced, quite tedious science fiction story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's so much personality in the original. Yeah, there's none in the remake yeah. at all. I, I think the good thing is that Blomkamp has said in his statement about this that uh, he said it's a sequel that was set in the world of Verhoeven. So I, I hope that means that he's taken those elements on board mm. and, and you know, is actually going to try and chime in with that, that sort of... Because actually, watch, I watched Robocop again recently for a thing and... Mm. It is massively relevant right now, massively so, and just it's it's you know it's talking about the privatization of yeah. prisons and nursing yeah. and and so on. It's like oh okay, that all sounds horrifyingly familiar. The privatization of space, even, and we've got Elon yep. Musk sticking his nose in there. So you know, uh, don't at me. I don't care. Um, <laughs> so yeah, whatever you do, do not add. Helen L. O'Hara. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> Not Hashtag. to defend Elon Musk. I have no time no, for don't, you if you don't, do that. No, 
No. That's fine. Yeah. I'm sure he's fine, and I think he will survive my criticism, so just I, leave him alone. I he's a big he's, boy. He's off in his little submarine. He's a big boy. He can doing survive. Doing whatever it is that he does. Anyway, my point being that it's all true. Basically, Robocop is all true, and if you look in your employment contract, somewhere it probably says that the company owns your dead body and can make you into a Robocop if they want. So I'm just saying, read the fine print, all right? It would be an unusual step for Bauer Media to take. <laughs> I'm just, Should we die in an unfortunate podcasting accident? They will resurrect Chris. <laughs> Even in death, you will host the podcast dead or alive you're partying with me so i could i could become robopod you could this would be amazing that i could have a be. microphone come out of my Never um, mind. chest area what i just i was worried you thought it was miming somewhere lower you were actually i was but lower. anyway i decided the pg-13 did the last minute <laughs> so you know oh, that's where they went I wrong could, with the robocop remake <laughs> that's one of the things yeah. I, i'd be amazing yeah you oh. would be much better at this dead <laughs> This is an interesting one. This feels like make or break a little bit for me for Blomkamp as well. Because he's a director who's had three films. The first one, District 9, is I think most people consider to be one of the best examples of modern sci-fi. And mm-hmm. you can certainly see Robocop and Verhoeven all over that one. Mm-hmm. And the last two, Elysium and certainly Chappie, are not, weren't that great critically or commercially. Yeah. And he's been trying to get these self-made fan, well, not fan because he's not a fan, he's a filmmaker, but these kind of crowd-funded movies off and he's got his own YouTube channel. And maybe that has engineered a kind of resurgence in interest in him in Hollywood. But it feels for me like he is this close. If he makes a fourth film and it's the third dud in a row, then he, he, might, be, he might be just, uh, you know, one more movie away from helming a bunch of Criminal Minds episodes. Hmm. Men get so many chances. Anyway, <laughs> well, you know, but you know, that's that's, that's fine because we're. I mean, we're about to be wiped out. We're about to die. So, yeah. apart know. from one man and his monkey, <laughs> and me, who's going to come back as Robo That's right. That's true. Yeah. yeah, I got microphones for hands. <laughs> Serve the public trust. What that's attracted right. you to the project? <laughs> Promote your film. <laughs> Classified. Just before we go, um, a quick word that uh, the opening film of the London Film Festival, the BFI London Film Festival this year has been announced and it is Steve McQueen's Widows, which I'm extremely excited about. It's an incredible cast and uh, I cannot wait to see that. So it's uh, Viola Davis uh, leading the posse. It is a bunch of, as the name suggests, widows who uh, who were all married to criminals and when their husbands all die in the middle of a or planning a heist the women are forced to basically do the heist themselves because they need the money mm-hmm. so um, you've got Viola Davis Elizabeth Debicki Michelle Rodriguez and Cynthia Erivo are the four women who team up to do the job uh, you've got Colin Farrell in there you've got um, Robert Duval. you've got Liam Neeson it's a heck of a cast and I'm very excited to see it Carrie um, Coon as well uh, yeah, sounds great. Great cast. Um, I'm very, very excited about this. And it's Steve hey, McQueen. Steve McQueen. We love Steve McQueen. Yeah, we do. Hey, Helen. Hey. Which Hollywood actress dissolves if she falls into a cup of tea? I'm so dreading the answer. I mean, something... Elizabeth Sweetener. Debicki. Because oh, she's... Because uh, 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 right, when okay. you put the Debicki yeah. no, in the yeah. tea... Yes, yes. Yes. Dissolves. Bicky being a uh, shortened like form a of biscuit. Biscuit, I, I see. yeah. Yeah, Bic- yeah mm. a bit biscuit, in yeah, case no, you're listening, yeah. is a cookie. Yeah, American listeners may be confused by that. but I just... It's a hell of a joke, Chris. I think us it's explaining a good joke. it only made it better. Hey, Helen, which Hollywood actor has a really fast internet connection? Jim Broadband. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. <sighs> oh, God. This I week, we were the go new with, like... issue of Empire is on sale. It's very, very exciting. On the cover of the new issue of Empire is James, it looks like. No, wait, no, it's the Predator. It's an easy mistake to make. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Jimbo, I hate you forever for this because... <laughs> I am Empire Shane Black correspondent. This has been established over the years. Yeah. And yet somehow you found yourself going to Shane Black's house, no less. He requested an upgrade. <laughs> he went, I don't want that guy. Yeah. The one with microphones for hands. Don't, yeah. don't, we don't like him. He's <laughs> we really don't want weird. the dead guy. It freaks yeah. me out. Yeah. Uh, yes, I did. I did indeed. I went on set of The Predator last year, which was very exciting in Vancouver. And I went to Shane Black's house uh, last month. Hung out at his house in LA, met his dog Ollie, who is awesome. Uh, saw his book collections and things, and we had a good old chat about the Predator. And I wrote about it using words in the magazine. Yes, uh, despite all that, it is a good read, hmm. and you should pick it up right now. It is the cover feature, and there he is, the Predator, looking all happy and smiley on the front of the cover, on the front of the cover of the magazine. Also in the magazine this month, it's a there's a bit of a Predator celebration. It's been 30 years since the original movie, so we got one of the screenwriters, Jim Thomas, to talk us through how the first movie came about. That's really good. Really enjoyed that. It's fascinating stuff. Good. I'm very, very glad for you. Uh, we also talked to the cast of Spike Lee's new movie, which won second place at Cannes. Back in May, it is Black Klansman. It's a it is lot a- of fun, that movie. I haven't seen it yet. I'm very excited about it. Uh, so we spoke to the cast of that movie. Uh, Nick DeSemlian went to... LA, I think it was, to talk to Mark Wahlberg and Peter Berg together because they have made their fourth movie. Name the other three. Now, go. Uh, Deep Water Horizon. Correct. Yes. And um, their other two the, were... The, the, wait, the, no, the, 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 the marathon one. Uh, Lone the, Survivor. Was it the marathon one? Uh, the Boston one. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. was called... Patriot. Patriot's Day. Correct. Patriot's Day. There you go. Uh, yes. That's a, a debicki for Helen. Uh, yes, Mile 22 is our new movie. It's, it's an action movie. Mark Wahlberg and Eco Wise and Ronda Rousey and all that sort of stuff. So there's going to be lots of fighting and kicking and punching. And so uh, Nick interviewed them both of them together. It's the we headline, also- Wahlberg Straight Ahead. I'll tell you what the headline is. It's on page 88. I'll go to, I'll flip to it right now. Oh my God, have, spoilers. No one's going to buy the manga if you give no away the gonna, headlines. I can tell you the, uh, here we go, here we go. What do you think the headline is? Put yourself in Nick's shoes. So it's going to be the most first place. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm kidding, of course. Congratulations, Nick. He won uh, Journalist of the Year at the Bauer uh, Media Awards this year. This week. Magazine Awards. Yeah, Nick. Yeah. Uh, What's the headline? I don't know. I've already already had my my comedy suggestion. It's the Disaster Artists. All right. Uh, Uh, We also spoke to John Krasinski about playing Jack Ryan in the Amazon TV series, which is coming out very, very soon. Super excited. We look at the making of John Travolta's disco drama Saturday Night Fever. And then I went to LA a couple of weeks ago and I interviewed a legend, Michael Douglas, about... Animal World, his um, his Chinese action movie, which is out now. It's on video on demand, I believe. And um, Ant-Man and the Wasp as well. And, of course, a storied career. There's other stuff in there as well. We open up the Stan Winston archives and see some exclusive uh, pictures of uh, the creation of the original Predator costume. That's good. pretty cool. That's good. Everyone's happy. Also has pictures of Jean-Claude Van Damme in the prototype costume, which looks like a giant space lobster. Not to be missed. That's good. There's lots of reviews. There's lots of new pictures from new movies in the preview section, the review section. Lynn Ramsey talks about you know where you would die. 
in the pre in the blah, in the review section, Lynn Ramsey talks about you were never really here. Uh, we try and list all the pop culture references in Ready Player One. See how that one goes. And there's all sorts of great stuff inside the issue. It is a steal. Uh, don't steal it. It is p- pay for it. Pay pair wages. It's on sale right now. All good and evil news agents and digitally as well. So there you go. That's it. Hard plug done. Let's have another guest. He's a wonderful actor, uh, a writer, a director. Uh, he's been on the podcast before. He is the wonderful polymath Ethan Hawke and he stars this week as a priest struggling with his faith and his conscience in very Paul Schrader-esque fashion because it's directed by Paul Schrader uh, first reformed and he came into London a couple of weeks ago for Sundance London and took the opportunity to come here and speak to Ben Travis thanks for yawning during the intro there James that's really good <laughs> sorry no that's fine it's totally fine it wasn't audible Except it totally was. <laughs> Dead or alive, you're potting with me. Anyway, here it is. Ethan Hawke. Enjoy. So, um, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Ethan Hawke, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Very good. Um, I want to start with an important question. You're here to talk about uh, First Reformed, the new mm-hmm. Paul Schrader film. Uh, you're the, the star of, uh, of the film. Uh, an important question to kick things off. In an early scene, you're offered a hot drink and you say you want tea over coffee. Are you more of a tea guy or are you more of a coffee guy? Sadly, I'm more of a coffee guy. I wish I would get in the habit of drinking tea, (laughs) especially here in London. But I I just, I didn't have my first cup of coffee until I was about 26 years old and I just haven't stopped since I had that first one. Do you have to have one to kind of get the day going, get your brain in gear? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the same. I'm not really a tea drinker, uh, so I, I related with you uh, on that note. But um, so this is the story of uh, Reverend Toller, who is a guy who's he's suffered great loss. Uh, he's turned to the church, um, but he has a crisis of faith when he attempts to to help this young couple, give them some spiritual guidance, and it kind of sends him, let's say, on a on a bit of a downward spiral. Um, what did the script mean to you when you first read it? Do do you come from a religious background? Did you? How did you react when you first read the script? Well, yes, I do come from a religious background, but really, a couple things struck me when I read it. First off, was the quality of the writing. Mm-hmm. Paul Schrader. There's very few famous screenwriters. You know, there just aren't that many of them. Mm-hmm. You know, people who really can separate themselves from screenwriting. I mean, it doesn't... Most screenplays are really just okay. Even the mm-hmm. good ones, they're just kind of... I always call them plans for a party. They're they're not really the party itself. Right. Whereas a Paul Schrader script kind of feels like reading a novel. I mean, you just... Mm. You you have an experience while you read it. And I so there's that. And then there was also the fact that you realize how rarely you see a movie about a spiritual life that... You see priests in movies, but if they are, it's like The Exorcist or something, mm-hmm. or you see them and they're a joke, um, you know, kind of a buffoon character to be made fun of or something. Um, and to see a real portrait of a person of faith was something that was really exciting to me. Mm-hmm. And, to, you know, Paul's background, he's he comes from a very serious religious background, something that he takes very seriously. And so... Mm-hmm. The writing was just exceptional. I mean, he's a three-dimensional human being who um, isn't one thing, who doesn't believe one set of dogma. He's really a person on a search. His faith is not brittle. He's an open person, and 
he's seeking kind of like the young couple that he's counseling. Yeah. And there's a one scene in the center of the movie where I really do counsel him and he's really asks me some tough questions. Mm. And it's really one of the best written scenes I've ever been asked to play. Yeah, I really wanted to ask you about that. That's a, a kind of... 10-minute dialogue scene with uh, Philip Ettinger, who plays mm. Michael. He's the kind of husband of the young couple. And it's, yeah, it's like a 10-minute meaty theological debate. There's some really long takes in there as well, where it's, it's just the camera on you two, like, just kind of talking about these really weighty concepts. How how did you shoot that? Did you do a version that was, like, the whole scene? Oh, of how course, did you break yeah. it down? Yeah. yeah, they were, when we first... It was the first day of shooting. Wow. It, it was going. Really, really, it was a 12-page dialogue scene <laughs> mm-hmm. on, on the first day. But what was wonderful about that is by being the first day, we were able to rehearse it a lot before mm-hmm. we started. And so it wasn't as difficult as it could have been. And this young actor, I had never met him before, and I mean, before making this movie. And he's really special. Mm. And what I loved about it is it'd be easy to write off the young man as radical, but his points are very sensitive and very well drawn and very intelligently written. And then I, as his priest, you know, he would ask tough questions about why to live and when the planet's on fire, mm-hmm. why why bring a person in, into why bring a child into this world and my answers were really good yeah. <laughs> you know i mean it was very thoughtful and beautiful mm-hmm. and about you know the nature of depression and the nature of life and that you know every generation kind of feels it might be the last mm-hmm. we all are kind of self-aggrandizing that way yeah and i don't know our, our it's one of the things i love about acting is you know, you do a Western and you spend the summer riding horses. You right. know, you do this movie and you spend the winter thinking about faith in regards to environmental leadership and stewardship and where is our leadership in, on that front. Mm. I mean, I think all of us, pretty much all of us, would love to be better stewards of the land and would love most of us when we see a eagle flying or see bear cubs or, you know, we, we want the world to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to uh, pollute and destroy our earth and this great gift we've been given, but we need leadership to help it help us be our best self. Mm-hmm. And it's frustrating. And yeah. y- you kind of, it is strange how much big business always finds its voice. Mm-hmm. And this, the more gentle voices on this earth uh, are harder to hear. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, uh, Michael's concerns are quite, um, they're ecological, they're environmental, but it feels like that's also symbolic of just a, a wider sense of what's going on at the moment. And I think it's really interesting that the film is coming out this year because it's just been like the strangest kind of 12 months or even even a bit further back than that. Did did the state that the world is in at the moment kind of help you sympathise a bit with with his side of that debate? Yeah, I mean... Issues of faith and issues of stewardship of our land are not, they're always topical. Mm -hmm. You you know, um, they seem particularly so now. I remember I was, uh, we were filming this in the days after the last uh, presidential inauguration. And I remember feeling so lost and being so happy to be making this movie Mm -hmm. because this movie 
gives voice to a kind of cry that I think a lot of us want to scream. Just, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I, you know, and how do I make sense out of this? Mm. And where are the saner minds? Where are the grown-ups? Mm. You know, and um, are we really going to, do we really have to publicly talk about why it's bad to lie? Is it, bless you. <laughs> um, have have we has the dialogue gotten that poor that we actually really? And it seems like yes, it has. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Working on writing of this caliber and a subject matter that is so uh, hard to lasso, hard to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as soon as you start talking about issues of faith, most of us kind of gloss over because we're yeah. worried somebody's going to proselytize to us. We're worried that we might not know that particular scripture passage. We might, uh, somebody, or you're worried somebody has an agenda with you. Yeah. And one of the things that's great about Paul is the movie's not left wing. The movie's not right wing. It's just human. Mm-hmm. It's just, a, it's just ringing the bell yeah. and saying, is anybody listening? And it's, it really is like a sort of full on two hour character study. It's, yeah. it's, Kind of, there are other characters involved, but it's mostly in on on Toller. I think he's in like ev- pretty much every scene of the film. Um, when you have such an intense character study like that, how long does that character stay with you when you finished? Um, did you find him quite hard to shake in a way? Well, I felt so close to this character. Uh, you know, I remember when I first picked up the script, he talked about the the books on Reverend Toller's dre- uh, dresser. Mm-hmm. And I remember every one of those books was a book my mother had given me. Right. And I felt like, wow, my life has prepared me for this part. I mean, I've, I've, I, I understood this guy. Mm-hmm. I really, I, I was fascinated by, you know, the, the young man I'm counseling turns out to be kind of a, a radical, yeah. ecological warrior and, and, and a radical in that way. And, the church that I am, the parish that I run in the movie, one of the things, it's kind of famous, they call it a tourist church because people stop by because it was part of the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. And for people who aren't in the U.S., you know, the Underground Railroad was part of the abolitionist movement of freeing slaves. And those people, those priests that helped do that, were radicals in their time period. They were breaking the law. They were, you know, they could be imprisoned and they were seen as really, uh, you know, outside of society. Mm. And it's an interesting place to frame the movie of here's this young man coming to me talking about wanting, basically wants to be an uh, environmental terrorist. Yeah. And that's, they were seen as, you know, those priests who were running the Underground Railroad were accused of being terrorists. Mm-hmm. You know, John Brown was a terrorist. Um, and to, to frame it, the, well, how, how will we perceive an environmental radical in 100, 100 years from now? Mm-hmm. How will history, will it shine the light favorably as it does on those abolitionists? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I mean, so I, I find that framework really interesting yeah. in the movie. Absolutely. I mean, this is just one of many kind of amazing characters that, that you've played over the years. And I, I want to come back to, to Jesse from the Before Trilogy a bit later. But um, a character you, you literally lived with for 12 years was, was Mason Senior mm-hmm. in, in Boyhood. Um, it's, it's a few years down the line from, from that coming out and from you guys finishing filming. Do you, do you still find yourself thinking about 
him, about where he would be right now, about what Mason Jr. would be doing? Oh, definitely. I, you know, uh, Eller Coltrane he sounds really corny probably, but, you know, I follow him on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Every time I see his picture and see him growing up even more and thinking about the next stages of his life, then my brain, of course, shifts to, well, what would what would Mason Sr. be doing now? And I, I saw Eller, I have a a film I directed called Blaze that just yeah. showed at South By, mm-hmm. and Eller came, and he was so supportive and so wonderful. It was so great to be together in Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, and if how would my brain not think about, well, what would we, what is this stage of life? You know, because what so, what's so fun about boyhood is it kind of just turns a magnifying glass in these little moments of life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, probably the next big one for him will be, for Ellers, well, what what happens in his love life and mm-hmm. how does his life evolve? And then how does your relationship with your parents evolve? Because it does keep, everything keeps changing. Yeah. That's the strange, nothing stays the same. Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's what's so affecting about the film is, is those yeah, kind of small moments. For sure. You, you mentioned uh, Blaze, the film that you've mm-hmm. directed. Um, how, how do you respond differently to a story where you go, okay, I, w- I want to be in this or for this one, I want to be behind the camera. I want to be directing. How how do you differentiate those projects? I, I don't know exactly. Mm. Uh, I know that I like to be a little off balance. Uh, I like to put myself in situations where I'm curious in uh, a student again. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I find it really exciting and for blaze i love music um and you know i directed this other documentary years ago seymour an introduction and it's all about music and my first film i did was this really experimental movie called chelsea walls and probably the Mm -hmm. best thing about that movie is the score that jeff tweedy did and uh i i love touching music and one of the things that directing lets you do Mm -hmm. is be around music because you're a you know, when you're acting, you're not a part of the score of the movie. You don't get to do... And I just love it. And I love musicians, and I like being around them, and I like knowing the secret behind a song. Mm-hmm. And I did this film, uh, a biopic of Chet Baker called Born to be Blue. And as I was doing it, it started to nag at me why every biopic you've ever seen is about someone famous. Mm-hmm. And it's subtextual level it's kind of telling you that famous people's lives are worth telling you know and why i would love to see a biopic about somebody who's not famous you know and a a musician who's not famous because most of the artists i've ever met of course are met with absolute indifference Mm -hmm. you you know and and they still throw themselves on that fire every day and i thought i want to make a biopic about a musician who nobody's ever heard of Mm -hmm. and it's kind of an extension of Seymour. I kind of did that with the documentary. And then I carried it further, exploring the life of Blaze Foley, who was a wonderful singer-songwriter who was kind of never, uh, whose voice wasn't really heard. Mm-hmm. And to me, it just represents all the voices that kind of get lost uh, in the river of life. Yeah. Right? I mean, you... Um 
You've worked a lot in the kind of field of of indie cinema and character dramas and things. One of the things uh, that you've done since you were last on the show was The uh, Magnificent Seven Uh with uh, Antoine Fuqua. I know you've worked with him a few times before, but what was that like going back to kind of a bigger film? It's kind of got a really starry cast. And um, what was it like kind of re-engaging a bit with that blockbustery territory? Is that something that... Was that an interesting experience for you? Oh, yeah, it's so fun. I mean, you know... To get to try to make a Western, I mean, have all, uh, I mean, that's an old-fashioned Hollywood Western. Yeah. You know, with all the bells and whistles that, you know, with Gary Cooper, you know, we've got mm-hmm. Denzel Washington, um, the greatest movie star of his generation, mm-hmm. you know, there walking down Main Street in yeah. his black hat and black horse and, you know, it was, I just loved it. Um and I like being a part of an ensemble. It's it's a different game, you know. Every you know, first reform. There's a certain game to that. You know, yeah. you're there's something radical and punk rock about that movie. But I'm the lead, and it's a little movie, and it has a clarity of vision. It's mm-hmm. Paul Schrader's voice. That's, and then Magnificent Seven is something else. It's you know, a hundred extras charging on horseback, guns, yeah. Gatling guns, and you know, so many wonderful actors. Vincent D'Onofrio and oh, Martin Sensmeyer, Native American actors. I mean, there's all these, um, uh, this great Korean actor, uh, being how I always pronounce his name wrong. I, yeah, I always end up calling him BH. This is so mm-hmm. pathetic of an American <laughs> of me. Um, but we had so much fun all being a part of something much bigger than ourselves. You yeah. know, that movie's not about one person or one mm-hmm. thing. And it is, it's about a mood and an energy and, uh, I enjoy that. You, you're talking about punk rock filmmaking as well, and that's that's what I think of at the moment when you look at somebody like Jason Blum, who you've worked with a mm-hmm. lot, where he's he's making these kind of really ambitious films on on small budgets, and then kind of um, the amount of filmmaking craft that goes into it to make it work uh, on those smaller budgets. And um, I read that you stayed on his couch when mm-hmm. you were doing. Uh, was it The Purge? Did mm-hmm. you, is is that true? Did you yeah. sleep on his sofa to? Well, you know his whole model is that if you work frugally you can have complete artistic freedom mm-hmm. and and he's kind of found a way to get studios to release these smaller more punk rock movies you know in a lot of ways get out is an extension of exactly what we were trying to do with the purge mm-hmm. which is make incendiary genre films yeah. you know to talk about you know if you say i want to make a film about race relations mm-hmm. you, you know everybody kind of is like oh geez you know all right here we're going to get talked at yeah right yeah but if you make a movie and you go in the future there's going to be rich people who don't care what happens to poor people and you, you know and it, it, they're like oh interesting tell me more yeah yeah mm-hmm. in the future okay tell me more and you kind of in the guise of an old-fashioned drive-in movie, mm-hmm. you can actually talk about some interesting things. Get Out did it so brilliantly, yeah, I thought. Absolutely. I mean, it's just it's a magnificent use of what genre mm-hmm. filmmaking can do. Because um, you, you're not making a sociopolitical movie, you're just telling a scary story. Yeah. But underneath it, I mean, that's I did my first film with Joe Dante, who directed me in Explorers, and he had directed mm-hmm. The Howling. Yeah. And you could make a case to be made that the howling is all about the Vietnam war Mm -hmm. and guys coming back from the Vietnam war and PTSD. And it's just symbolic of that. And it's really beautiful movie when you realize it or sinister, for example, is a movie about, uh, 
the monster of ambition, mm-hmm. a father who lets incubus into the house. And what is incubus? Mm-hmm. Our own desire to be important. Mm-hmm. That's the monster. And it eats your whole family alive if you let it. Mm-hmm. And now you can see sinister with that metaphor, but it, of course that metaphor is boring and pretentious if the movie isn't scary. Mm-hmm. It's got to first of all be scary, and then underneath it, you're like, actually, Something I know more. what that movie was about. Do you, do you think you've got like a, a genre movie, a Blumhouse movie, in you as a director? You know, I have thought about that. You know, as a as a student of movies, you know, like because that's Clint Eastwood really learned to direct by directing genre movies at first, yeah. you know, and directing these westerns. And I've thought about it. I. Directing a movie requires you to be the most knowledgeable person on set on that subject. And I, I doubt that I would ever be the most knowledgeable person on how to make a genre movie. I, mm-hmm. I love them. And I, as an actor, I can apply a craftsmanship to giving a good performance mm-hmm. inside one. But there's a geometry to making a good scare. Yeah. The, you know, Hitchcock knew what he's doing. When I worked with Scott Derrickson on Sinister, He's there's a math to that, yeah. And you need to know the equation. And I'm not sure that I would know exactly two x minus r mm-hmm. equals y cubed. Yeah. You know, and Scott knows that. A good a good director knows that math. Mm-hmm. You get the feeling when you watch a Chris Nolan movie that he knows the math of what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And when I did Blaze. Blaze is a movie about artists and about people trying to express. Like, I know that world. Mm-hmm. I, I have something to say about that world. And I, I cast people, you know, I cast Charlie Sexton, who's Bob Dylan's guitarist for years. He's a great musician. And mm-hmm. he has something to say about Towns Van Zandt. Yeah. He knows that world. He knows that music. And when you see the movie, you can feel him talking to you. Mm-hmm. And Ben Dickey, is, who plays Blaze Foley, he knows something about struggles with the music industry. He's not acting in the lame sense of the word acting. He's giving you a performance. Those tears mm-hmm. are real. And, you know, Kazan used to have that thing he would say that you have to put blood on the celluloid. Mm-hmm. If somebody's going to pay money to waste precious minutes of their life watching what you have to say, there better be some blood in that <laughs> celluloid. And, you know, that's the trick. You've got to have something to say. Mm-hmm something you do know inside out is is the before trilogy mm. uh, and i read in an interview uh, the other year that um you and uh, richard linklater and uh, julie delpy you were going to meet up five years after before midnight and just see what the yeah. conversation is see w- what could move forward uh this year is is five, years, is five years since the film have you had that conversation and what are your feelings about moving it forward i don't know is you know the it will be very interesting to see. I feel like there's something about that trilogy mm-hmm. that has resolved itself. Mm-hmm. That when I finished the first one, it didn't feel finished to me. There's such an open-endedness to the ending of the first two movies. And there's something cyclical that happens. You know, the before Sunrise opens with an older couple in their, in their 40s, you know, having a fight on a train and this younger couple behind them watching. And in the third film, we kind of become that couple. Mm -hmm. And there's something circular about that, that, that feels wonderful to me. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we finished before midnight, I kind of felt like 
a sense of completion with that project that I'd, I'd never had before. That doesn't mean Rick and Julie and I couldn't find another way to revisit Jesse and Celine, but I'm yeah. not sure what it is yet. Fascinating. Well, I can't wait to find out if, if there is more. Well, thank you so much, Ethan Hawke. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Chris here, taking over from Chris briefly. Don't tell him. As you know, this week's podcast is sponsored by Sky Cinema, which gives you unlimited access to the best movies at home whenever and wherever you want in the best possible way. I've been a Sky Cinema subscriber for many years now. I love the choice they offer. They've got over a thousand quality movies on demand ready for me to enjoy whenever I want. This week's recommendations cover four of those movies. July 25th sees the release of the sixth Mission Impossible movie, Mission Impossible Fallout. And thanks to Sky Cinema's Tom Cruise collection, you can see how the franchise began and evolved with the first three Mission movies. There is the brilliant paranoia-infused Brian De Palma-directed 1996 original Wordless CIA, Heist, Fainting David Schneider, Rolf Saxon, and all. There's also John Woo's less successful, but certainly interesting for a variety of different reasons. Mission Impossible 2, famous for its emphasis on doves and love, with this bad guy being Dougray Scott. Uh, famously, of course, that movie overran, preventing Dougray Scott from becoming Wolverine and Brian Singer's X-Men. The world might have been very, very different had that movie not overrun. Then, last but not least, there's J.J. Abrams' cracking Mission Impossible 3, in which Cruz's Ethan Hunt gets married to Michelle Monaghan and then finds the world's most dangerous terrorist, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, gate-crashing his happiness. You know the drill in these movies. There's lots of masks, double crosses, incredible heists, Cruz running a lot, hanging off stuff, jumping off stuff. The sort of stunt work, basically, that will make Jackie Chan think twice. Great stuff, and all available now in the Tom Cruise collection. And because I'm still very much in a World Cup mood, I'm going to recommend a great sports film as well. Sky has a collection of sports movies available right now. There's some absolute belters on there, including the little scene Coach Carter with Sam Jackson. But I'm going to recommend Brad Pitt in Moneyball, which is the true story of how Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, brought a statistics-based system of analysis and recruitment to Major League Baseball and changed how people viewed that game, and indeed many sports, forever from Moneyball leaked into football over here as well. It's got compelling performances from Pitt, of course, and the likes of Robin Wright, Jonah Hill, and a young Chris Pratt. It's a thrilling insight into the lengths people would go to pursue success in sport, and it's brilliantly directed by Bennett Miller. So there you go, my recommendations for this week, Mission Impossible's 1, 2, and 3, and Moneyball. There we go. Join me next week for more Sky Cinema-related fun, and back to you in the studio, Chris. Okay, time now to talk about this week's movie reviews, and we are going to start off with a return for the Parr family in Pixar's and Bradbird's Incredibles 2, Hell's Bells. Hey, Helen, you've got a character named after you in this movie. Wow. You're our very own Elasti Girl. So uh, what's this one like? Uh, this one is, as you would expect of an Incredibles movie, highly entertaining. Uh, so the story picks up immediately after the end of Incredibles, which is confusing because it's been 14 years for the rest of us. Um, but the, they've faced the underminer. Um, the battle does not go entirely to plan because, you know, he's a tough opponent, naturally. Nothing naturally. is beneath him, but he is always beneath us, as it were. Um, and, uh, and so superheroes, once again, have a public relations problem on their hands. So a uh, kindly 
stranger appears with an interesting proposition. He thinks that Helen Parr, a.k.a. Elastigirl, is the way to sort of restore the superhero's um, reputation. He wants her to kind of front the effort to get superheroes back into the kind of the spotlight, into the kind of, uh, well, into legal legality, right? That's a technical term, shut up. So um, she uh, has to basically leave the house and go to work um, for this guy, Winston De- uh, Devor. I can't remember how it was pronounced. I only saw it two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's voiced by Bob Odenkirk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and kind of try and, you know, restore the reputation of superheroes by being awesome and not causing massive amounts of collateral damage as she does sh- so. The problem is she faces a terrifying new foe called the what? Screen Slaver. No. Who by... Like takes control of people's screens and then hypnotizes them with the screens and then makes them do stuff. That's a character that started with a pun in the office. Yeah, definitely, hundred percent, hundred percent. So she has to try and battle the screen slaver. Uh, meanwhile, Mister Incredible is left at home with the kids, uh, as well as helping Dash with his homework and Violet with her love life. He also has to negotiate the fact that they have just discovered that Baby Jack Jack has. Many, 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 many wonderful, many wonderful powers. powers. So yeah. that's exciting for him. Yeah, 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 yeah. So is this as good as the first movie? Do we do we like it? Does no. it sip- yes. Yes and no. No, it's not as good as the first movie, but yes, we like it. Okay. The first movie, is, I think it was a Nailed On 5, wasn't it, from Empire? And um, this one um, is, spoilers, 4. Um, but it's still a huge amount of fun. Um, I just don't think it has quite the narrative focus and drive of the first one. There's a lot going on. It doesn't all, all entirely hang together. Mm. But everything that's going on is is fun. Like all the Jack-Jack stuff is is nothing to do with the main plot, really. Yeah. But yeah. you're entertained like hell when watching it, so... There's a bit with a raccoon and everything. It's great. <laughs> I've seen that sequence. I have not seen the whole film, but I've seen lots of footage from it, mm. including the raccoon sequence. Indeed. It's a fun sequence. Mm. But, uh, you know, Edna Mode comes back in. She's awesome, obviously, voiced by Bird himself. Um, it, there's there's lots and lots of fun stuff, but it, it, it just, yeah, it just doesn't have quite the same focus that I think the first one had. Mm. Um, it just feels a little bit woollier. Um, and you're, you're entertained the whole way through, but you just don't come away quite as struck, I think, as you did with the first one. All right. Okay. So we gave this one uh, one star. Uh, it's a bit of a shock. <laughs> what? Uh, but we multiplied it by four. Right. Yes. That's okay, right. Yeah. That's so four stars. Then four, four stars. That's that's my new star rating system. By the way, everything's confusing. one star multiplied by something. Uh, it's how Robopod works. Uh, my targeting. I, I need some more baby food. That's what I need. Basically. Do you remember the Robocop computer game, Jimbo? That was great fun, wasn't it? Yes, because you collected baby baby food. Yeah, baby food. Yeah, yeah. that's what gave you health. Okay. I do remember that game. Yes. Sure. Yeah. It had a great theme tune that and turned up in an advert. It was a... It really did. I genuinely remember that. Yeah. Uh, it was an ocean game, as I recall. It was an ocean game. Yeah. Isn't nostalgia brilliant? Oh, Helen. it's brilliant. Brilliant. Love, Love it. it. Great stuff. Do you remember, I used to, do you remember, I used to be similar, better, though. It used to be better. <laughs> very similar to the Robocop computer game was the Cobra adaptation, also an ocean Yeah, I'm not game, interested. So, uh, four stars the in. Emmys. Four stars in for Incredibles 2. <laughs> <laughs> you are a twat. <laughs> um, let's talk about skyscraper. Let's. Yay, Jimbo. So 
This is the Towering Inferno. That was an epic intake of yeah. breath. It's this. This is this is this is a film that I really, really, really wanted to see, uh, and then I saw it, and that's <laughs> that's kind of the problem that I have there. I reviewed um, this film on, on Twitter this week, and my review was skyscraper is 102 minutes long. Yeah, and then I realised I should have said 102 minutes high, but I I don't have much. To say. Good to say about this film, sadly. Well, this stars uh, Rock the Dwayne Johnson as uh, Will Sawyer, a security expert and ex sort of SWAT operative uh, who is essentially doing a security audit on the tallest building in the world, uh, which is The Pearl, which, as Dan Jolin pointed out, looks like a snake chewing on a tennis ball. Um, <laughs> it's a monstrosity, but hey ho. Um, it's an awful, ugly building, yes. isn't it? And in a film which essentially amounts to uh, a squabble over a hard drive, um, it's uh, terrorists set the building on fire, his family's in there, and stuff happens. So it's halfway between a kind of die-hard-esque terrorist plot and just a natural disaster, the building's on fire, try not to get burned kind of film. Yes. Um, and both of those films are fun, and this one is not fun. I disagree, but and go ahead. <laughs> I think okay. So, so this is this is this is written and directed by uh, Rawson Marshall Thurber, who did the awesome Dodgeball. Um, he wrote it as well. He wrote it as well. Yes, indeed. Um, and uh, it should have been good. Like The Rock is charismatic. He's great. Nev Campbell, who plays his wife, is also great. You know, you've got two good people in good roles. You have some unfortunate bits of casting elsewhere where there are, shall we say. Uh, goodies who are really baddies but the people they cast <laughs> are so comically baddie <laughs> that uh, you can kind of see that yeah, coming there's, there's, there's some telegraphy yeah. a little, a little bit this is one of those movies where I almost want to do a spoiler special because it is so <laughs> utterly ridiculous that, but without giving things but, away there's, there's a reveal of a bad guy <laughs> that you think is a good guy and then that bad guy says surprise surprise and it's like no mate the second you walked on screen I yeah, knew you were a bad guy exactly um, but the problem actually is the baddie I think in this because Roland Moller who's the he's a Danish actor who plays the baddie in this is a glorified henchman without oh it's uh, yeah I mean he has I mean you're going up against Hans Gruber do you know what I mean that's well, the, the bar where it's set if you're ripping off Die Hard exactly get the villains right exactly and they don't get the, like, all of the villains are entirely disposable and that for me I think is its biggest problem that and you know the plot doesn't make any sense the contrivances are extraordinary I mean it's just screaming gibberish from top to bottom yeah. it's it's daft but not as daft or as knowing as it could have been but that's it like i felt and your mileage may vary on this a little bit but Hello. it felt to me that <laughs> no one making that film was in on the joke uh and also, oh, it yeah. has some of the most extraordinary foreshadowing I've ever seen. Oh, the foreshadowing. Yeah, well, look, I'll give you this. <laughs> I, I call it foreshadowing, by the way. No, it's good. It's good. Like, it's like, we will introduce this thing. And you think, hmm, there can't possibly be a shootout here at some point later in the movie. Yeah. Look, I, I agree that it is totally preposterous. And I uh, had a blast. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Now, I will say that any, any time where The Rock was you know, hanging off a high thing, which was about 15 minutes worth of the movie. Yeah. I was I was very tense and I find that quite gripping. I also find some of the fights quite visceral, especially the one near the beginning, the first one against the yes, guy in the apartment. Yes, where he does some fun That's, stuff with a, like a, a dish rack. Yes, mm. I, I thought that was a really, really good fight scene. I really enjoyed that. So, and, and obviously I also think The Rock is great. And I think he, he actually had some moments of real acting in this film like the first scene with him and his wife yeah he he portrays genuine like lack of confidence and if you're the rock <laughs> 
portraying a genuine lack of confidence is no mean feat, and I was impressed by that. We have okay. mentioned, haven't we, that he's he's got an artificial leg in this. That's, he does. Yeah. yeah. Have we mentioned that? Already? We haven't. We he haven't. Does. We okay, haven't. So, but he does. Yeah. Uh, he his character has an artificial leg in this. He's an FBI hostage negotiator at the beginning of the movie. That's how we, we see that. Another thing, Die Hard didn't do. By the way, they didn't have ten minutes of backstory at the beginning of the film. They told backstory through character and dialogue. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but here we go. We see Will Sawyer. So he has an artificial leg, he a does. prosthetic leg, and that comes into play in some fairly inventive ways. Look, this is not a terrible, terrible film for me. No. You know, our rating is exactly bang on. There were some sequences I had fun with. Uh, there are some sequences where you sense it's getting close to being the ludicrous you know, as much as it wants to be <laughs> diehard in a building, yeah. yeah, but a bigger building, it also really wants to be a Fast and Furious movie and have that sort of sense of ludicrousness and ridiculousness and, and OTT. Ludicrousness. And, 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 yeah, ludicrousness, uh, but he was unavailable, I'm guessing. It doesn't really get there. It and doesn't. one of the reasons for that is I don't think it gives The Rock anyone to really bounce off. It's a bit of a brisk breeze, this film. It, it ends... It ends at about 93, 94 minutes. It's 102 minutes with credits. You won't feel the length of this movie. Uh, you'll feel the height, but you won't feel the length. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's not entirely... I would put it to you, Helen, though. I would put it to you that you are very lenient on The Rock, and I would be lenient to The Rock's face. <laughs> 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 no, I genuinely had a good time. And okay. I, I, I liked Neve Campbell's character. I liked uh-huh. him. I, liked, I thought the kids were cute without quite going over into annoying. You know, yeah. I agree that the villains were not great. I agree the foreshadowing was all over the place. <laughs> yeah. All over the place. Um, but just the, the action kind of kept me entertained. Okay. And I laughed all the stupid stuff, so I was happy. I, um, I enjoyed the bit when The Rock just looks at the camera and goes, this is so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed that a lot. Does that happen? It does, yeah. Just before he, he, went, just before he, he goes swinging out the window. And he looks like, at the camera? No, well, he doesn't look at the camera, but it's implied, I like to think. He he looks. He winks. And no, he doesn't. But no. he does. He does say the line. Okay. And there was lots of tittering in the screening. Yes, there was. There was. But uh, you know, hey, if you're in the mind for a, a really dumb action movie, then maybe Skyscraper will float your boat. Yeah. Who knows? But I, yeah, I think The Rock has had a slightly dodgy run of late, and maybe needs to start hitting more home runs like Jumanji, yes. which I think was yeah. a fantastic Absolutely. film that I still regret giving three stars to. Should have given it four. You should. Uh, and uh, hopefully maybe the next couple of films he makes down the line can be, can be great as well. So there you go. Two stars then for Barrel Scraper. No, that was a joke. That was a joke. How dare you? Skyscraper. Okay, we're running out of time, sadly, so we'll, we're going to have to do the last couple of films in dispatches, uh, starting with Paul Schrader's first reformed Hell's Bells. Yeah, so this is uh, Ethan Hawke on extremely good form. He's the pastor of a small church. Um, it's coming up on its, I think, 250th anniversary. Um, but he's thrown into a bit of uh, turmoil when a pregnant and very earnest parishioner, um, played by Amanda Seyfried, um, asks him to counsel her depressed husband, who's an eco-activist. And he's basically saying, how can I bring a child into this world? Because we're basically facing economic and environmental catastrophe. Will God forgive us? And and this really gets under the skin of, of Hawke's character, um, Pastor Toller, uh, Father Toller, and, uh, and just really tests his own resolve. And he decides to take some unusual steps uh, as a result but it's it's uh it's a very intense film um and mm-hmm. and just fantastic obviously performances and a really interesting take on faith 
uh, as, as a concept, as a, as a thing in our world. Mm-hmm. Um, Ian, who wrote the review, called this uh, called Hawks a kind of Travis Bickle in a dog collar. Um, but uh, even even aside from the, the taxi driver resonance, uh, he's, it's a stunning performance and uh, yeah. one of the best of the year, I think, or likely to be. Yeah, a performance that may well stick around, possibly. Hope so, the, into, in into Oscar, Oscar season, yeah. Who knows? Uh, so four stars then for First Reformed, uh, Paul Schrader's best film for some time. Uh, and also mentioned in dispatches, The Secret of Maribone, Jimbo. Uh, yes, this is written and directed by Sergio Sanchez, who's a Juan Antonio ben, uh, Bayona collaborator. He wrote The Orphanage, you will recall. Uh, and this is a slightly creepy horror about a young man played by George McKay. Uh, he, he, he and his uh, three younger siblings uh, move to an old manor in the middle of nowhere and their bad mother idea. dies, which is always a bad idea. Their mother dies and they vow to keep the fact that she's dead a secret until... Uh, uh, George's character Jack is 21, so the family won't be separated by social services. So it, it, it's, you can't really say much more about the plot because it is, as with the orphanage, kind of hinges on a big reveal. Unfortunately, it's a reveal we've seen before. This has been done better in other places. I can't mention where because I would rather give away what it is. Uh, but it's a, it's a film that kind of flirts with, is it a psychological horror? Is it a supernatural horror? They are plagued by, shall we say, happenings within the house. Why are the mirrors covered? Why are there strange stains? There's a time jump from when they move into the house and their mother dies and then it picks up six months later and something has happened in that interim uh, and there is, shall we say, a presence <laughs> in the house. Um, it's, it's quite good, it's quite scary, but unfortunately the big reveal doesn't really deliver and as I say, it has been done before. So it's a bit of an eye roller in the final act, which is a shame because some great performances in there. It's got Anya Taylor-Joy in there, it's got uh, Stranger Things Charlie Heaton in it as well. Um, but yeah, if you, if you want a, a creepy horror, go nuts. Uh, but we gave that one... Three stars. Three stars. Three stars. Which, as we say in the podcast... It's a recommendation. It's a robo-recommendation. Indeed. Robobot. And then, last but not least this week, we have the small British film Pincushion. It stars Joanna Scanlon as an eccentric and shy person who relocates to a new town in northern England with her daughter. And there the daughter falls foul of the school queen bee. Uh, Ian Freer reviewed this film, gave it four stars, and says it offers a movie meditation on what it feels like to be different. Elevated by great work from Scanlon and newcomer. Lily Newmark. So four stars then for Pincushion. Seek it out if it's at a cinema near you. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast, brought to you by those wonderful peeps at Sky Cinema. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by Jeremy Irving, one of the stars of Mamma Mia. Here I go again. (laughs) Yeah, here we go. Is my, it my. Yeah. Is it really happening? Oh, yeah. Christ on the bike. <laughs> James is fully on board with this movie. I, I hate ABBA. I'm so you excited. You hate ABBA? I do. I How really can you do. hate ABBA? I just, it's, it's something about it. Weirdly, ABBA and Queen, real issues for me. Um, so this year's going to be a, a great wow. one. I used to work in a shoe shop and they played um, ABBA Gold literally every day. Yeah. And it was... I, I did hate ABBA for a while, but I'm, I'm still... I'm in for this because Cher... <laughs> share is the answer share and share alike uh, who else we joined by Drew Pierce, uh, co-writer of Iron Man 3 he is making his directorial debut next week with Hotel Artemis uh, which he also wrote um, there's a chance by the way just to prep your ears that that may become a special because when Drew came in at the pod booth we chatted for almost an hour so that may become a special so keep, your, uh, keep an eye on my old social media platforms and well, maybe see how that one goes. Oh, and the spoiler specials, Mission Impossible Fallout, the epic interview with Chris McQuarrie is happening this weekend. 
So uh, keep and peel for that one as well. That will be out after the movie's out in July. It is July. happening for the whole of this weekend. Pretty much the whole of this weekend, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, we're, we're trying our best to make it go as long as we possibly can. So How we'll long was the last one? Uh, the last one was two hours and two and, a, two and a half hours, something like that, 158 minutes. I think the last one was 158 minutes. So the goal is just what, to, this time to double the film's runtime. That's the... Uh... Pretty much, okay. yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that one goes. And um, and the Wall Supporter, Supporter Special will be coming your way August 6th, something like that, with Peyton Reed and producer Stephen Broussard. So lots of stuff going on. Until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Diddly. You off, uh, off for a march? What are you, you going to do after this? Are you just going to... I'm going to march right down to Leicester Square and watch Mission Impossible. Yeah, you are! Yeah! And I'm coming with you. Woo! Hands across the divide. Uh, Jimbo, uh, it's goodbye from you as well. Bye. James Dyer has also been here. That, that, that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Yawning his way through. <laughs> Look, I'm tired. What do you want from me? I was forced to watch football last night. It's, t- it's been emotionally draining. Uh-huh. I'll tell you what was emotionally draining was my neighbours celebrating between 3.30 and 5am. While you cursed their names and yelled, Bah! Humbug! Out the window. I, I tried not to. Were they to. Croatian? I assume so. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to my local A&E because, uh, quite frankly, gluing microphones to my hands. It was a good idea at the time. Was it? It was. It felt good, but... It's a good look. It, it's really hurting. Also, it's weirdly phallic. So, <laughs> it just... <laughs> It feels wrong when I ask you a question. It just it just feels wrong. Anyway, thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. That was Robopod. Bye. Bye.